All right, everybody, what's going on? I hope you guys are doing well. Welcome, welcome, welcome to uh, the Dr. Boyce Book Club. It's so good to see everybody. I hope you are doing good. I hope your lives are are as wonderful as I wish, as I want them to be. And uh, I hope you guys had a great week um, so far. Uh, this is, uh, I know if you're an investor, this has been a really good month. A lot of your stocks are doing really well, especially if you invest in some of the stocks we've talked about in class. Uh, if not, that's okay. Uh, the stock market went down a little bit. So that might be an opportunity for you to uh, actually reach that next level uh, in your economics. Uh, I uh, want to encourage you and I really want to let you guys know that uh, right now, just the opportunities are just off the chain. And uh, that's where I'm sort of starting the conversation today uh, in terms of just the, the fact that there's wealth all around you. There's wealth right in front of you. And I would encourage you to go find it, you know, because I, I hate the idea that you are uh, missing opportunities. Um, in fact, they say the word poor. Uh, if you really want to be uh, kind of a smart look about it, the word poor uh, is an acronym for missing opportunities repeatedly, missing opportunities repeatedly. So a lot of times, uh, again, when, you, when you've sort of been thinking about <clears throat> economics and money for as long as I have, uh, you get to the point where you kind of see stuff, you know, you kind of see opportunities, you see stuff out there that um, that is sort of like, okay, well, the money's right there, go get it. And uh, maybe we're just not ready or whatever. And that's totally fine. Uh, and uh, I'm not judging. I'm just sort of screaming at the top of my lungs, lungs repeatedly over and over again. Uh, why I think right now is really a good time for you to look into investing. Uh, you guys ask me all the time, what's the biggest mistake a person can make uh, in investing? And uh, and I would tell you the biggest mistake a person can make as an investor is to not invest at all. Uh, if you don't invest at all, that's you're making the biggest mistake because there are literally studies that show. Uh, and there was a study by Burton Malkiel in 1971 where he showed that even monkeys can invest. Uh, even monkeys can make money in the stock market uh, with the right, uh, you know, sort of being positioned in the right way. And uh, ultimately, that is uh, something that I wanted to kind of share with you because that's what, what was on my mind. Now, let me know if you guys can hear me okay. Give me a yes if you can hear me okay. Uh, we're going to uh, read some Powernomics uh, by Dr. Claude Anderson. Uh, his, his books can be found at Powernomics.com. And I see Denise from Atlanta. Let me see who else is in here. I see uh, Sean and uh, Romilda and... Uh, Karen Dorsey and Deborah Slater. And uh, I saw, uh, let's see, the Smiths from Alabama. Uh, I love it when you bring the whole family here. That's really important to educate and learn together as a family. That way you can develop the right code of conduct. And uh, let's see here. Um, I see Gastonia for Karen Dorsey, Patricia Jones. Uh, I see you. Uh, Ryan Jackson. Hello, beautiful black people. How's everyone doing? Uh, B1 from the Smiths already said that. Uh, let's see here. Sacramento. Uh, what other cities do I see? Heather from Detroit. I see uh, Mr. Jan Jasmine from Jacksonville, Joseph Beavers from Tampa, Florida, Rhonda Holmes from NYC, Shante Moore, Spartansburg, South Carolina. Uh, so you guys can hear me okay. I'm not cutting in and out uh, because uh, someone mentioned I was cutting in and out. I want to make sure that you guys can hear everything that needs to be heard. All right. So uh, anyway, I'm going to open up my book. Uh, and I want you guys to know that if you ever want to, if, if you're listening outside of here, sometimes I put this stuff up on Spotify or stuff, stuff like that. If you actually ever want to join the book club directly and come into the private Zoom, uh, this is a free class we do in the Black Business School. Every Wednesday night, uh, I'm literally teaching Powernomics and other uh, powerful Black wealth strategies from, from books uh, written by great Black authors. And so if you'd like to join, uh, you can actually participate for free at BlackKeysToGreatness.com. That's BlackKeysToGreatness.com. And, uh, and actually also this week, uh, if you're interested in more specific wealth-related stuff, uh, there is a training I did called uh, How to Become a Millionaire in Five Minutes a Month. 
and you can go to boycewalkins.com. We actually discounted that. So you guys can go take a look at that if you'd like to. It's totally up to you. Now, I'm going to start off by kind of um, beginning the discussion by mentioning basically that uh, Dr. Claude Anderson uh, is in this particular chapter, he's talking about churches and he's speaking about whether or not he's speculating on whether or not the black church has been uh, beneficial to the black community economically. The black church has reached its economic potential. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna tell you what, you know, um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. I, I want to ask you guys this to begin. Give me a yes or no. Do you think that the black church is uh, a, a net positive or a net negative to the black community overall? I'm talking about all the churches. Remember, there are thousands of churches. You can't put them all in one lump. You can't put them all together as if they're all uh, preaching the same thing. Uh, give me a yes or no overall. Does the negative outweigh the positive or does the positive outweigh the negative? Okay, Dwayne says negative. Anita says yes. Allegra says negative. Um, what, what are some other thoughts to see? Ryan Jackson says negative. Michelle Muhammad says Satan has deceived the whole world. Okay. All right. Uh, you might be right about that. All right. So uh, let's see. I see Doc Mechanic says uh, negative. Uh, okay. Golov says negative. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit of, uh, of Dr. Paul Anderson's book, Powernomics, page 223. You can get his books at powernomics.com. Uh, that's a great way to not just support Dr. Anderson, but to support your family and support yourself. Uh, so feel free to go to powernomics.com and I hope we'll make it rain on his website as much as possible. All right, so let me start reading and then I'm going to uh, pause and kind of interpret what we're reading here. So uh, in chapter eight, Dr. Anderson talks about a new and expanded role for churches. He talks about how black churches can uh, help the black community, can allow the black community to prosper and succeed in ways that we have not before. He talks about how the black church can be used as a vehicle to allow black people to experience a type of uh, economic success that we haven't before. Uh, he says, so he starts with a little quote. He says, man was admonished not to covet his neighbor's wife. Nothing was said about coveting his neighbor's wealth. Now that's kind of funny. I don't know if you should covet people's stuff, but okay. All right, so <laughs> throughout recorded history, God's words and teachings have been used and even distorted to teach that it is wrong to want to have wealth and power. So a lot of times in some churches, they teach you that wealth is evil, wealth is bad. Uh, but then some churches, they teach you, you know, prosperity gospel, where they say, we want you to get rich so you can really add money to the collection plate. Uh, they make you think, make you feel, or it, perhaps correctly or not, I don't know, I'm here not to judge. They make you feel that putting money in the collection plate is... Um, the way to get a return on investment, that it's an investment. It's like putting money into a trust fund uh, or into an investment account or into um, into a business. And uh, I don't know if you believe that or not, but uh, that's sort of what you see in terms of how money is addressed in the church. You see it addressed all the time. And the thing about the Bible is that the Bible is such a powerful book that you can literally twist the Bible into whatever you want it to be. Whatever agenda you have, the Bible becomes a reflection of who you are. The Bible becomes a reflection of your goals, of your uh, desires, of the things that you want to see. So, uh, you know, an evil person who is money hungry might use the Bible to distort that and basically say, look, give me your money and the Bible will help. It says that you're going to have more money. You're going to get tenfold and stuff like that. Um, and personally, I, I I don't agree with that. You know, I, I uh, if I want to do God's work with my money, I, I believe I can do it without giving it to the pastor. I believe it's better if I give it directly to the people that I want to see have this money. But that's a personal thing. Right. So uh, he says that um, the most often cited scripture was Matthew 1924 that said, quote, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of, of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This scripture is not anti-wealth. The scripture challenges those who do, who do acquire wealth and power to use it uh, to help those who do not have it. 
Therefore, it is wealth inequalities and not wealth itself that the scriptures oppose. Wealth inequality. So it's interesting. Easier for an uh, okay. So I, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's um saying that if you're rich, it's hard to get into heaven. I think that's what the biblically it seems to be saying here that it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, that's pretty hard because camels are pretty big and needles are pretty small. So um, that for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, that I don't know. I, I'm going to tell you on the surface, it sounds like it's kind of anti-wealth. It's basically saying if you're rich, you ain't going to heaven because ain't no camel getting through the eye of a needle. Ain't no camel. I've never seen a camel get through the eye of a needle. The camel could go on every diet imaginable. He could lose as much weight as he could. He could be a baby camel. He could be a midget baby camel and still not get through the eye of a needle. So I don't know how this works out, but maybe I should not take things so literally. Maybe I need to use my imagination. No, it's a metaphor. Uh, the scripture challenges those who do have wealth to uh, to use it to help those who do not. Therefore, it is wealth inequalities and not wealth itself that the scripture opposes. Uh, in accord with scriptural admonishments, the Powernomics National Plan is about acquiring wealth and power and then using it to improve the lives of people who have long been denied the joys of a decent quality life. Okay, that's good. So Dr. Anderson's saying something that I think is important to understand. Uh, you guys know about this thing called capitalism. And capitalism, as it's practiced in America, is, in my opinion, uh, kind of horrible. Um, you know, capitalism is something that, unfortunately, has hurt a lot of people. Uh, capitalism has uh, has really created um, a lot of problems in society that didn't have to occur. Um, I think that capitalism, as it's practiced in America, is honestly a little bit inappropriate, uh, not just because you're hurting other people, but because you're ultimately hurting yourself. When you don't uh, make sure that everybody in society is getting a taste or everybody in society is getting a piece, then what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for a scenario where all the poor people just get together and they just decide they're going to beat up the rich people and take all their stuff. Uh, this is what happened in the French Revolution. This is what uh, it could happen in the United States. It's happened in China before. Lots of societies have had this happen. So uh, you really don't want to have a society where you've got uh, people stepping out of their limos and stepping over homeless people or, uh, you know, walking over uh, starving people on their way to uh, a, ma a massive feast, because eventually that does catch up with you. So uh, if we had a smart society, in my opinion, we would embrace some of these ideas that might sound a little Marxist or a little socialist on the surface, but they're actually good business in terms of making sure you hook everybody up. People in the hood know this, like real smart dope dealers in the hood understand this. There was a movie called, uh, it wasn't Juice, it was another movie. I think it was the one that, no, it wasn't the one that Dame Dash did, but I don't remember. I, I think Mackay Pfeiffer was in it or something like that. It might've been Dame's movie. I don't remember. Dame is my friend and I got, I paid, I, I think it was, he did paid in full. I don't know if it was paid in full, but it could have been. So anyway, let me tell you what the lesson was in this movie. There was one part in the movie where a guy had a lot of money and he knew that his friends around him that didn't have a lot of money were, were, were looking at him. He knew that his friends, if they didn't get a taste of what he had, we're going to eventually beat him up, rob him, kill him, and take all his take all his wealth. So I don't remember how he resolved this. I don't know how what it led to. I think it led to some people getting killed. People always get killed in black movies, right? Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, I remember noticing that that they noticed this thing about wealth that's really true. That if if you're eating good and everybody around you is not eating good, then eventually those people start to look at you funny. They start to get mad at you, and they want to take what you have. Uh, and in some cases, it's because you're 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 ignoring. Uh, the situation that you're involved with. Now, at the same time, some of you may go through this and it's not even your fault. Some people are mad at you just because you're doing well or in, and, and the rest of the family is not doing well. 
They don't understand that the, maybe the reason you're doing well is because you went to college when they didn't want to go to college. Uh, maybe you're doing well because you saved money when they were spending money. Maybe you're doing well because uh, you uh, hustled and started a business where they didn't want to take a chance. They just kept that job at the post office. So uh, so the same people that made fun of you when you took all these chances in order to get ahead are the very same people who might envy you or be upset with you because you got money and they don't. So in those particular situations, I don't have any sort of sympathy for those individuals because you did have your chance. And remember, the word poor stands for passing over opportunities repeatedly. So lots of people stay poor because every opportunity that God gives them in order to not be poor, they ignore the opportunity, right? So uh, effectively, uh, one of the things I will tell you also is that in this comment, they they talk about, you know, being um, uh, about e equality. Dr. Anderson starts off in Poweronomics chapter eight, page 223. He talks about the use of wealth to achieve equality. And, uh, and I find that word equality to be really interesting. Now, I'm going to start off by saying this. I don't believe I don't really believe in the term equality. I'm not I'm not a fan of it. I don't think that that should be the goal. Um, I know people use this term a lot. I know that this might be contrary to what you've been hearing from other people, but I'm not a big fan of the word in, uh, of, of the word equality. And let me tell you why this word triggers me a little bit in a couple of ways. Uh, one, I think that if we talk about using things like reparations as a pathway to economic equality, like closing the racial wealth gap so we can have equality, I think there are going to be people, liberals mainly, who are going to push back and say, well, the you know the bigger problem with inequality is uh, inequality throughout the United States. There's wealth inequality in the United States. There's poor people. We should help all poor people instead of just giving you know fourteen trillion dollars to black people, right? And then they're going to look at black people that are doing well and say, well, you don't deserve reparations because you're you have more money than most white people. You you make a hundred thousand a year, so you don't deserve reparations. The reparations are for the poor. So in effect, politically speaking. Reparations, if we talk too much about in, about equality and let other people run away with the narrative, then reparations becomes a poverty program. It becomes a strict program that's designed to basically say, okay, instead of just giving money to Black people, because you know, you know they hate giving money to Black people, um, we're going to give money to every poor Mexican we can find. We're going to give money to every illegal immigrant that's struggling. We're going to give money to every poor gay person. We're going to give money to every struggling white woman. We're going to give money to every poor white man that is, that's down and out on his luck. And then next thing you know, it won't be a reparations program anymore. It'll be a, a yet another poverty program that doesn't work. So that's one of the reasons why I think you got to be careful about that term uh, equality, because yes, there is a, a, a wealth gap between whites and blacks. Uh, but I don't really think also when you're talking about building wealth that you should focus on the gap and say, okay, the goal is to close the gap. Uh, the goal is not to close the gap, in my opinion. The goal is not to uh, close the racial wealth gap for me. In my mind, the goal is to uh, reverse the racial wealth gap. Uh, the goal is to create a bigger gap. And the bigger gap is a blacker gap. The bigger racial wealth gap that I'm looking for is the one that's going to happen with B1 people. B1 people, because I'm talking to you every single day, every single week, every single month, and I've been talking to you for years, you're going to pass these ideas to your children. These are cutting edge, leading financial ideas. These are things that you won't even find in the textbook because that's what PhDs can do. We know this stuff at a surgical level and understand things that most regular people don't know. Most financial experts don't understand these things because people like me teach financial experts. We teach MBAs. We teach your stockbrokers. We teach your investment advisors. We teach your other PhDs. So, so at the end of the day, what's going to happen? This is my prediction. When I tell you guys that my goal is to make sure B1 people are the world's leading experts on, on all things economic, 
I mean that. And I'm going to accomplish that goal because I'm an absolute beast with it. I'm not going to stop. My wife calls me the juggernaut because everywhere I go, when I, when I pour my passion into it, I leave a mark everywhere I go. And right now I'm leaving the mark with you. I'm leaving the mark on your family. We're leaving the mark on our community. We are creating a movement that will sustain itself over the next three or 400 years because wealth has a natural ripple effect. What you pass down to your children is going to be passed down to their children and their children and their children and their children. It's the reverse, the opposite of a generational curse. A generational curse that might have started 80 years ago stays in your family. It, 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 domestic violence, maybe it's divorce, maybe it's some type of abuse. Well, if you can hold on to the generational curses, then I hope that you can hold on to the generational blessings too. So, so ultimately, what I'm saying to you is that um, I'm not in this game for equality. I don't care nothing about equality talk. I don't even listen when you talk, uh, we need equality. Yeah, 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 whatever. I'm a competitor and I've never, ever run a race. I was the captain of my track team when I was in high school and never once did I ever run a race saying, my God, I hope that I can be equal to the other runners at the finish line. I hope that I can, I can tie everybody else. No, no, no. One time, I, I this is a true story. This is kind of funny. I'm gonna get back to the book in a second, but I, I, I want to. I like telling fun stories just because it's funny and and I, you know, I don't want you to think I'm serious all the time. But one time when I was a junior in high school, they tried to recruit me to play football, and I couldn't play. I didn't play football because the playbooks were too thick, and was, and I didn't want to practice in the hot sun. But I had big muscles. I'm, I was naturally muscular and very fast. And one day, all the football players came out to track. I was captain of the track team. They all came out to track for like two or three months, you know, thinking that they're all fast and everything because they could run the 40-yard dash and stuff. But they didn't know how to sprint. Like sprinters have a certain way of running. You breathe a certain way. You lift your knees a certain way. So I knew how to sprint, but they knew how to, you know, sprint as football players. So we raced uh, to see who would be on the relay team. And the, the top person that won would be the first and then the second and the third, whatever, right? And I remember lining up in that race. And, uh, and, the, and, and, and I raced against all the fastest guys on the football team. And I remember when I lined up in that race, I was not thinking at all, like, gosh, I hope that we all tie. Like, gosh, I hope I can keep up with these guys. You know, I was thinking, I said, I want to beat your butts. I want to blow you guys away. I want to kick your asses in front of your coaches, right? And, and, and I wasn't even going to join the football team, I, but I wanted them to want me on the football team, right? So, so I, I lined up and we took off, bam. And there was a guy named Kurt. I'll never forget. And because football players are explosive, he took off way out in front of me. And I remember I, I said, man, I don't think I can catch this guy because he was he took off so fast. So, But I started running and I did what track sprinters know how to do. Only track athletes know how to do this. You got to know that there's a way you run. So I relaxed. I breathed. I moved my arms a certain way. I, I lifted my knees. And you know what? I started reeling that sucker in like a fish. And I caught him. And then not only did I catch him, but I beat him by a good five or six meters. And I ran across the finish line. And I and all the coaches were watching like, whoa, who is this dude? And I and I had my I had big muscles. I, I look good back then. I look pretty good back then. And I remember thinking like, ha ha, I know you want me on the football team. I ain't playing football. I don't, I don't want to play no damn football. But that day, my point is to say, that I wanted to win. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to tie. I didn't want to just be in the race, you know? And, and that's the thing with us as black people is that you got to be careful the, Sometimes the biggest curse that you get uh, from anybody starting in the school system is the curse of low expectations. They expect your children just to get by. They, they look at you and they say, well, as long as you're in there, as long as you're competing, as long as you have a job and that's nonsense, that's stupid. You know, seriously, 
there were in, in college I, I got into this big argument i was a fight i got i got i got into the fight I, I when i was a kid that was back in the day when you could really fight and stuff kids don't fight in school now they're either shooting or there's no fighting at all it's like nothing in between but i remember when in college and there was this kid that, that got on my my nerves his name was pete i'll never forget this guy and he said something mean about my girlfriend and i so i started making fun of him because i had a high gpa and his grades he had like a 2.4 or something and i had like the highest grade point average on the campus and so i was mad and i was back then i was 21 so i talked a lot more of crap than I do now and I remember I was like I was like well my G look at my GPA what's your GPA and he's like I got a 2.4 I said oh that's that's the dummies you idiot right and I and, and that was me being arrogant I admit that was wrong that was wrong for me to do that but I remember him saying something like well at least I'm here at least I didn't drop out at least I'm on campus and and again I would probably say it nicer now that I'm, the 51 year old boys ain't the same as the 21 year old boys so so give me some grace on this but I remember saying is that all you're happy about is that all you're aiming for is just to be on campus to just survive? You bet. No, you're not trying to win. He said, he said, I said, no, I'm winning. I'm going to win. I'm going to succeed. I don't know what you're trying to do. You're just, you're just happy that you're here. So I remember thinking as I reflect on that moment, which again, this wasn't my best moment. Cause I was being, I was mad. Cause somebody, somebody call your girlfriend ugly. You want to beat them up. And, but I remember feeling like, like I, I thought about that. And I remember in, in, in college, I went to the university of Kentucky. I remember that a lot of the black students that didn't do well, part of the reason they didn't do well academically was not because they weren't as smart as I was. A lot of students, I met a lot of kids that were smarter than me I, I, in terms of IQ and all that. It's because their expectations were garbage. They were just trying to, they were just like, gosh, I hope I don't flunk out. Is that all? Is that all you can do when you go to college is hope that you don't flunk out? How about going and trying to be the valedictorian? How about going and trying to be the highest, have the highest grade point average on campus? How about trying to beat out the Asian students and the Russian students who know, who study 10, 12 hours a day while they're in college? How about that? How about setting some standards of excellence <clears throat> that, that go into the classroom and, and don't just show up when it's time to do the perfect step show? Because y'all know what I'm talking about. Anybody remember in college how you would literally have the, the C student who's in college for seven years, but who shows up with hundred percent black excellence every time it's time to have a step show they 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 know how to bark on cue and and do all the steps in the right way and swing their head the right way just absolutely perfect like fred astaire and ginger rogers like high level performance when it comes to a step show but when it comes to every other area of life it's just mediocrity you know so i think that part of the pathway to black excellence is to first of all identify what black excellence even looks like like sometimes we think black excellence means you know, is, is a rapper showing up in a thousand dollar outfit or something, right? Which is stupid to me. That's not black excellence. Cardi B in a $5,000 dress is not black excellence. No, even if Diddy thinks that it is, that's not black excellence to me. Black excellence is when we show up ready to fight. Black excellence is when you show up and you are on your, on your game. Black excellence is when you show up with a strategy. Black excellence is when you get your troops together and you organize and you win. In fact, let's talk about another type of black excellence that does relate to sports. Um, and I'm going to start reading the book uh, again uh, in a second. But I watched this documentary called The Redeem Team. And it was all about when uh, LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and Carmelo Anthony had to go to play in the Olympics after the United States had been humiliated the previous time. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember uh, the, the first you had the dream team? You give me a yes if you follow, if you were around for any of that. You had the dream team. Jordan, Bird, Magic just killed it. Barkley, they just ate the lunch of every every team on earth. They, they, they It was a joke, right? Then the other, the rest of the world started catching up and they showed up ready to play. 
They showed up organized. They showed up with a game plan and they literally beat the snot out of the United States. They, they embarrassed those guys. Why? Well, because we didn't show up with the best players. The players weren't uh, hadn't practiced together. The players thought that because I'm in the NBA and you're not, that somehow we're just going to magically win. And they got, they beat the brakes off those guys. I mean, embarrassed the entire country on the basketball court. Well, well, they came back and uh, coach Mike Krzyzewski from Duke took over that team. And, uh, and LeBron James was on that team. Uh, Carmelo Anthony was on the new team. Dwayne Wade was on that team. And uh, then Kobe Bryant eventually joined that team. And one of the things that they did with these guys was they worked on creating a culture of winning. They worked, they helped them understand what it looks like to be organized, what it looks like to sacrifice, what it looks like to put your ego to the side for the sake of the team. They, you know what they did? They brought in war heroes. They brought in soldiers and shout out to all the veterans in here. Thank God for you. Right. They brought in veterans and soldiers to explain to them how they win battles on the battlefield, how you put together a battle plan, how you sacrifice for the other people that are in your group so that you can be prepared to go out here and fight and, and, and win a victory. And the players were like so emotional. There was one guy that was there and they said he looks normal, but he actually has no eyes in his head. His eyes were taken out by shrapnel. Shrapnel went into his eyes. So he was sitting there and this guy who looked normal, he was actually blind because his eyes were gone because of the shrapnel that went into his eyes. And, and, and they were like, that's what a hero looks like. That's what sacrifice looks like. Now, don't get me wrong. I get it. You know, if you're not pro-military or pro-war, uh, I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, I loved it because these guys were inspired to understand what level of organization, strategy, and sacrifice was required for them to win. And so Kobe Bryant took the lead and Kobe Bryant said, I'm tired of seeing y'all lose. We're not going to lose. So ultimately they came out there and they came out with a winning attitude. They came out with a winning culture and they won the gold medal for the United States. They redeemed themselves. So in a way, I think that for black folks, I think that generally speaking, particularly B1 people and for you and your family, you and your crew, whoever you got around you, you should understand that the amount of energy you put toward winning will have a direct impact on your probability of getting the win. The amount of sacrifice you're willing to make for your teammates will have a direct influence on whether the team survives or if the team falls apart. The amount of passion you put behind your desire to win will have a direct impact on whether or not you show up with a strategy to be successful or you show up and get your butt kicked. So really, I just hate that word equality because it speaks as if black people are automatically losers unless white people decide to let us get in the game. I'm not as asking you to let me in the game. I'm going to bust through the game. I'm going to create a whole different game down the street. I'm showing up and I'm going, I want to do what Michael Jordan did where he took all the championships. I believe that's what we can do. I, I've seen us do this. We do this in sports, by the way. We do this like in basketball. We do this in football. Serena and Venus did this in tennis. Tiger Woods even did it in golf. We, we can show up and we take all those titles. But for some reason, when it comes to things that are academic and things that are economic, we leave that winning energy at the door. Like we somehow feel like, okay, being wealthy is white people's stuff or being educated, is, oh, that, that's acting white uh, or, or me you know, or me preparing with a strategy and a plan and, and being organized as a team. Oh, well, that's not appropriate. Black people don't do that. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, so I would encourage you at the end of the day, whatever you want, whatever you want, just know the solution is out there, but you probably have to change your culture at some point. You probably have to look around you. If you're surrounded by people that are not where they want to be, 
uh, you got to sort of say, okay, how do I get around people that are where I need to be? How do I get in the space where I'm going to be encouraged to be structured, prepared, organized, and do the work in advance? Like investing. Investing is very easy. Getting wealthy with investing is the easiest thing on the planet. You could teach a monkey how to build wealth in the stock market. It's that simple. I kid you not. Again, 1971, Burton Malkiel, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. That's the name of the book where he trained monkeys to invest and the monkeys had more wealth than people who didn't invest. It's that easy. The hard part is the losing culture. You know, if you're used to always falling behind and catching up at the very end, then it's going to be hard for you to prosper and get a hit. If you're used to always playing struggle-nomics, then power-nomics isn't, isn't even your game. You won't even be motivated to do well when you're ahead. Some people, so just like some basketball teams, you ever see like a basketball team that only plays good when they're losing, but when they get a lead, they start to get lazy and, and waste, you know, they, they lose the ball and they waste waste time. Well, some, some sometimes we, we live like that, right? So I think that in general, um, I believe in diligence. You know, uh, that was that was the secret, man. When I was uh, in college, I remember everybody, nobody understood how I was able to magically, it's kind of like it is now. Like now some people are like, Dr. Boyce, do you ever sleep? You seem to be working all the time. No, I just know how to manage time. I just have a strategy. I'm very efficient with my time. I, I take two naps a day. So no, I get plenty of sleep. Um, but, you know, and, and the same thing happened in college. When I was in college, I would do weird stuff like like the normal course load would be 15 credit hours. I would take 21 credit hours, make straight A's and be working a full-time job. And people did, and I'd be on the basketball court. People didn't understand that. And and I and and the the secret was simple. I didn't waste my time with bullshit. Excuse my French, I'm not going to cuss anymore. I just didn't waste my time with stupid stuff. I had a simple set of goals. Okay. 4.0 GPA. Stay in shape at the basketball court hang out with my girlfriend, make my money. And if it wasn't, if, if, if what you were asking me to participate in did not fit in one of those boxes, nine times out of 10, I wasn't doing it. So by being clear about what my objective was, I was able to do a whole lot more than people who were very distracted. And these are not hard skills uh, to obtain. Um, so I encourage you to do that. Incorporate that in your family. You know, uh, you're, not, you're not supposed to lose. So let's read, um, I'm reading Powernomics. Uh, Dr. Anderson, uh, his book is at powernomics.com. We're on page 223. Let me read more. He's talking about black churches and, and black churches are beautiful in a certain way. Let me tell you why black churches are beautiful. And Dr. Anderson will talk about this. Black churches are one of the last great institutions that black people have that were not destroyed by white people. Black people are one of the last, uh, black churches are one of the last great institutions that we have in the black community. Integration. They took away your Black-owned schools. Integration, they took away your Black-owned businesses in exchange for corporate jobs and student loans. Uh, integration, uh, you don't have a lot of Black-owned real estate. Uh, they took away your families. That was another institution they took away from you. But the church, somehow you held on to the churches. So the churches have that ability, in my opinion. A church is beautiful when it operates at, high, at a high level. A church can be, um, it can be a place where you send your kids for school. It can be a place with after-school activities. They can do uh, you know, work for the, the, the poor and struggling in the community. They can provide housing for some people. They can, uh, they can provide uh, legal services. Like a church can do pretty much anything it wants because a church is a natural economy. It's a natural economy. In fact, in my book, The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power, I show you the three C's of building an economy. Any church on this planet can literally apply the three C's and build an economy right there in the church where you don't even need to go outside the walls to get the things that you need. You can literally almost become like a country within yourself. 
but you have to have the consciousness in order to do that. You have to have the desire. So Dr. Anderson says, this chapter calls for a new and expanded role of, for those of black, for those black churches, uh, black, excuse me, for those of black America's 65,000 churches that choose the poweronomics vision. Just as established religions played a central role in institutionalizing black slavery, modern organized religion can be instrumental in carrying out biblical instructions and correcting the wealth and power in inequities between the races. The black church community is the only black institution that successfully survived centuries of slavery, Jim Crow, Jim Crow semi-slavery, and government-directed benign neglect. With that survival record, they are the most qualified institution to bring wealth and prosperity to an impoverished black race. So you hear that? He's not bashing the churches. He's calling the churches to greatness. He's saying, you know, you're one of the last places that we have in, in, in place that can help us do what families can't really do as much anymore. So he says, God must surely have intended for black people to be wealthy and recognized as a special people. Otherwise, why would he have honored them by making them the first humans, established the Garden of Eden in Africa, and made Africa the most resource-rich landmass on earth? Why else would the color black be the dominant and base of all other colors? Though black people were put upon and enslaved by other nations, religions, and ethnic groups, clearly <clears throat> this was not God's original intent. The Holy Scriptures admonish us to aid the impoverished and despised people of the earth. What group of people are more impoverished and despised around the world than black people? Surely black people <clears throat> are some of the most religious people on the earth. It is, uh, it is on the basics of this special spirituality that we now challenge black churches to expand their, their traditional role and to use the fullness of their status and visibility to come to the aid of black America. In this chapter, when we use the word church, it means all black religious denominations and organizations. And the term ministers refers to leaders of these organizations. Uh, one thing about the church is also uh, churches have to be included in the reparations conversation. Uh, the Catholic Church in particular uh, was a heavy beneficiary from slavery. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a point where they asked the Pope if slavery was okay, and the Pope said, yeah, sure, go ahead. It's cool, right? Basically, just give me a couple of slaves so I can have some for myself. You know, it ain't no fun if the homies can't have none, right? So basically, the Pope literally stated that slavery was cool. If he had said slavery is bad, it's evil, it's wrong, they would have cut it down or ended it. But the Pope literally was the person who uh, who encouraged people like, yeah, it's fine. Like, keep on doing it. Like, get more slaves, right? So the Catholic Church owes reparations. Remember, the reparations conversation shouldn't just be about the government. Don't get caught up in believing that all reparations need to come from the government. The government doesn't, the government has money for sure, but the government doesn't have all the money. Corporations have a lot of money. A lot of corporations should be paying their fair share when it comes to reparations. In fact, if I could do it my way, I'd create like a reparations tax. Anybody who has above a certain amount of money is going to pay, you know, 10% of that wealth or that income for the reparations fund, whatever. Um, I would go to downtown Chicago and point out maybe 70 or 80 of those, you know, 100 million, 200 million, $300 million buildings and say, these are now the property of black people. You go to most downtown cities. I want you to think about this. Next time you go downtown, uh, downtown Minneapolis, downtown Los Angeles, downtown Seattle, I want you to look around at these big, gigantic buildings that cost $100 million, $200 million, $300 million. And I want you to ask yourself, how many of these skyscrapers belong to Black people? Because you look at the skyscrapers in a big city like a Houston or, 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 uh, or a New York, All, there are thousands of these buildings. And they're worth insane amounts of money. Washington, D.C., same thing, all of that. 
right? So ultimately, I think that we should get a piece of that. I think all that stuff, some of that stuff belongs to us. Some of that real estate, it should be ours. So let me keep going. Uh, he says that black churches are our oldest economic institution. The black church is the only institution over which blacks had, had some reasonable amount of control. They are the oldest and largest black-owned economic enterprises, holding the highest concentration of black wealth and social power. These realities alone qualify and position black churches to play a pivotal role in black America's building alternative economic structures within its own communities. For centuries, both black ministers and their churches performed an important societal function. They were always visible manifestations of black consciousness, values, and spirituality, the one area in which black people have had our greatest degree of freedom. Despite legalized slavery and Jim Crow semi-slavery, uh, black churches instilled black family values and a community code of conduct, guided our emotionalism and spiritual upliftment, cultivated and contained our culture and refined and passed on our musical and artistic talents uh, and talents. Remember, Whitney Houston came out of the church, right? And that's uh, she's among probably thousands of black singers that came out of the church, right? So the church is uh, the birthplace of a lot of amazing things. Uh, we have trained our civic and political leaders who fought for justice, for justice, freedom, as well as developed our first mutual aid societies, insurance companies, newspapers, and numerous other businesses. With a present annual revenue flow of approximately $50 billion, this is back in, I guess, uh, the 1990s when Dr. Anderson wrote this, Black churches remain Black America's largest and oldest mechanism for aggregating wealth and creating businesses. But a 1983 survey of more than 1,800 Black clergymen found that only half supported the use of the church to achieve Black political and social change. So a growing danger is this. He says, we are now in a critical post-integration period. Black churches, like Black people, are at risk. The flight of the Black middle class from inner cities to the suburbs weakened Black churches and left them with smaller congregations a weaker financial base, and a, a lesser Black orientation. This weakening role of the Black churches is occurring at the same time that Blacks are losing faith in social integration. Black churches are the last standing, truly Black institutions. Just as Black Americans lost their communities, their schools, their role models, their baseball teams, and their music to social integration, there is great fear, and eventually we're going to lose our women and our men, by the way. I don't know if y'all have heard that there's this group somebody was talking about called the Divestors or something. I don't Know that, and I think this is like groups of women who uh, who brag about dating white men, right? Like we're gonna divest from black men, and then you've got the passport bros, the passport bros who are divesting away from black women and complaining about black women. And uh, you know, and I'm gonna tell you, there's nothing wrong with getting a passport. Everybody should have a passport, but if you're getting a passport just so you can get away from black women, then shame on you. Something's wrong with you. Just get your passport and take a trip, have fun. But don't tell me that you're getting your passport to get away from the very women who protected your black ass in slavery. Seriously, seriously. And, you know, and then when these guys get in trouble, when Becky, you know, screams rape or uh, something else happens and they end up uh, it, it, getting OJ Simpson, then suddenly they're talking about racism. Well, you know what? I think black women, uh, the good black women in our community have been incredibly important in protecting us. So I think that when you're talking about these choices, I think you just got to be careful. Watch your mouth. You know, just watch how you talk about your women. I mean, these are, we wouldn't exist without a black woman. I think it's absolutely insane that we have men that somehow pathologize black women, but you put white women and Asian women on a pedestal. You're mentally ill. Something is wrong with you. You know, seriously, I, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that you don't have a right to do what you want to do. I'm not, I never judge what somebody chooses for a partner or a relationship. You can do whatever you want. But just shut up. Stop talking about black women when you go, go, just go be with your white woman and just shut up. 
You know, or if you like that white man, go be with the white man. We don't want to hear you criticize black men when you're picking white men. Like that doesn't make, you're not invested in the game. So you have no say at this point. The rule in stock market investing is that companies have these things called shareholders. And when they have a vote on what's going to happen in the organization, they reach out to the people who are invested in the company. Disney, when they have a vote of their shareholders, they don't care what people think who are not invested in Disney. If you are not a customer of Disney, then shut up. If you're not a, a, a supplier of Disney, then shut up. If you're not an investor in Disney, then shut up. You have no say. So if you're not invested in Black women, then you can't talk about Black women. Stop acting like you're correcting them and holding them accountable and making them better. No. Same thing. If you're not invested in a Black man, you have no right to turn around and say, well, I think Black men need to do this and Black men need to do that. That was the issue. You remember that lady, Ebony, what's her face? Uh, was talking about dating a bus driver. I don't care if she don't want to date a bus driver. I know a lot of good women who say, I'd rather have a man who owns a bus. Ain't nothing wrong with that. All, uh, every study on dating and romance and, and relationships in history will tell you that there are women that are naturally attracted to financial security. Ain't nothing new. Rich men have been attractive since the beginning of time. That is not going to change just because you decide it will. So there's nothing wrong with that part. But then when you turn and you say, well, I'm encouraging black men to be excellent and blah, 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 blah. And then we look at your fiance and your ex-fiance is not a black man. Well, you lost a vote in the organization. You're not a shareholder. You're not invested in a black man. So you can't say anything. I can talk crazy about black women every now and then. I get a little bit of a license because I can show you my wife is black. The kids in our house are black. Like we're blick, blick, blickety black. We're in there, right? We're, we're going through the struggles, the ups and downs, dealing with the trauma, dealing with the, all, the, all the things that make us half wonderful and half crazy. There are people that are dealing with that. And to me, in my view, those are the individuals that deserve a vote. So, uh, so at the end of the day, I, I shout out to all of you that are invested in black people, black children, the black community, because I know it's hard because the thing that sucks sometimes, and I, I want to share this and then we're going to start keep reading, but uh, it sucks sometimes because sometimes a black person does hurt you. You know, uh, I think that we should talk a little bit more about the fact that 76% of all black women grew up without their father in the house. You know, it's even if their father was involved and he lived across the city or whatever, and you saw him once every two weeks, that ain't the same as having a daddy that's waking you up and taking you to school every day. I'm sorry, it's not the same. So there, there's a lot of uh, pain that comes with that. Uh, I, I know men who've been hurt by their experiences with black people. And I really just think that we have to heal from that. And the healing has to be done in a way where we're conscious enough about healing without sort of lashing out and destroying each other. So that's my two cents. That's what I believe. So if you're not invested in black people, it doesn't mean I hate you. It doesn't mean you can't come. I, there are people that come in here that have white spouses and stuff. And, and, I, and I never ever would make fun of somebody for something like that. Right. So don't ever think that. But just like if you're married to a white woman, don't go talking crazy about black women. Like marry a black woman. Then you can talk crazy about your wife. That's what I do. All right. So anyway, let me keep going. All right. So black churches were one of the first tools slave masters used to socially engineer black people. Um, he says a slave's exposure to organized religion in this country was limited to accompanying the slave master to Sunday morning services as an attendant or a driver. While colonial laws of 1672 discouraged slaveholders from baptizing black slaves, Christianity was used to benefit white masters. In general, slave masters hoped Christianity would encourage slaves to be Christ-like, render them submissive and obedient, let me underline that, submissive and obedient, justify Black bondage, and instill internal controls over the hearts and minds of Black slaves. 
Those internal controls were accompanied by self-serving interpretations of the Bible, alleging that blacks were a cursed people. Many blacks became so convinced that the world was so full of sin and sorrow that the sooner they were dead, the better off they would be. Man, so when religion, religion and the Bible are so powerful that when you use them in an unethical way, it becomes the ultimate tip game mind control technique. Literally, to convince people to be subservient and submissive and just sit there and do nothing until you hope that one day you just die, that your life is going to get better once you're dead. Think about this. Your life will improve once you have no life at all. I think that is the sickest, craziest thing that a person could hear, right? Because uh, I'm not saying there's no afterlife, but there's no proof of that. So you have this life and you may only have one life to live and you're going to spend your whole life waiting until you die. That ain't cool. That's crazy. But that's what they convinced you of, right? Because a lot of slavery, a lot of control of Black people, we see this in every election, a lot of control of Black people comes through uh, you know, propaganda, fear, repetition of messages that uh systems you know they there's they love they love things like the public school system they because they they love the idea that both parents should go off and go to work because you're worthless if you don't have a career right if you're just if you're just a mom like that that you don't want to do that you want to go in the factory and be sweaty and go to the office and get stressed out all day that's that makes you a real woman right oh but but you don't want to be just a mom right okay so you're off working all day now your kids are at school all day and they get to brainwash your kids they get to make sure your kids aren't learning from the family they're learning from the state. They're not learning from you. They're learning from the government. Well, the government has a plan for your children. And that plan is called corporate slavery. Uh, that plan is called uh, excessive consumerism. Uh, that plan is called going deep in debt with student loans so that uh, when they're 32 years old, they're living paycheck to paycheck and they have to go back and forth to that job every day because they don't know any other way to survive. Right. So ultimately, um, I just think it's important to get out of that matrix. Um, I think it's important to observe this and don't let anybody judge you or tell you what to do. You do what you think is best, period. Um, from their inception in the early 1800s, they had the responsibility to focus the aspirations of Black people on the next life. The scripture was, was used to promote Black inferiority and justify slavery. Once the white power elite selected or approved a Black person to administer to the Black masses, this is where a lot of your Black pastors come from, and your, you know, your, um, Negro minions that that work for you know pol various political parties or whatever or the the uh, or I call them um, Negro managers. They're not black. They claim to be black leaders, but they're really Negro managers. Their job is to manage the the chickens so that they all show up for slaughter, or manage all the sheep to get them all into the into the slaughterhouse. Okay, or like herding cattle, right? So you're being herded by the Negro managers. Um, he says they uh, they admonished the ministers to teach that. So when they here's what they told the pastors. They said, you must teach black people this. They said, one, you must teach them that when the Holy Bible refers to slave and master, it was referring to the black race and the white race, right? White master here on earth. That was one thing that Dr. Anderson says they were told to teach. Number two, you were told to teach that blacks were supposed to be hardworking, trustworthy, obedient, and humble. That's the second thing that pastors were told to teach the congregation three they were to that they were supposed to accept their lot in life postpone worldly pleasures so you get no pleasure in life you got to accept the situation you're in and look forward to their pie in the sky after death so the black pastor is supposed to be your friend and i want you to really connect this to modern day conversations i need you to understand that this is not ancient history these are traditions and norms that were passed generation to generation, and it still happens to this day. 
So they were taught to basically, I'm gonna go through it again. Number one, uh, remind black people that slave and master is referring to white people and black people. Two, uh, that you train the black people to be hardworking, trustworthy, obedient, and humble. And three, accept your lot in life and postpone your worldly pleasures to look forward to a pie in the sky after death. Essentially, black churches and black ministers were approved to induce blacks into colluding in their own exploitation and subordination. How about that? How about that for a mind, a mind cluck? I'm not going to cuss today. I'm not going to use the F word, but that's a mind cluck. They clucked our brains out. <laughs> so, so effectively, so when, when a black person shows up and says, man, this is crazy. Like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. This doesn't make any sense. Well, the white folks didn't have to actually um, do the work required to shut that person down. They had plenty of black people that were ready to do a forum. They had plenty of black people that were ready to take on the battle. I, I was talking just today on the podcast. And by the way, if you my podcast is on Spotify. If you guys ever want to you know, look for it, just look for my name or look for the Dr. Boyce breakdown on Spotify. Um, yeah, so I was talking today about Ice Cube and, uh, and there, was a, there was another person that got really upset with Ice Cube, a, a black guy who I guess works for one of the political parties. And uh, and he was really attacking him and and saying Ice Cube is telling black people to go vote for the Republicans and stuff like that. And uh, and Ice Cube responded pretty harshly and he said, I, I never told anybody who to vote for. And uh, and, and I'm glad he said that because I talked about that. I said, just make sure you make that clear as much as possible. Because But even when you do, people are going to misinterpret you because that's what politicians do. That's what politics does. They lie. They just, you, know, you just find your adversary. You just make things up. Um and uh, and I just thought about this idea. I mean, I thought about how just the hilarity of the fact that a black man was attacked for trying to help black people, you know, rather than simply saying, you know what, I don't agree with you. I'm not going to participate. I think that's a that's a that's a legitimate response. Like you could literally just say, you know what, I don't I don't agree. I, I, I want to vote for Joe Biden or whatever, because I don't think that you're right. That's fine. But they went out of their way to go after him. Like Negro, what are you doing? Like we're they're not gonna even have to beat you because we're gonna beat you first. That you have to be trained to do that. You have to be trained. Like you, you got some real trained monkey-minded people that will literally go do the work of the white supremacists for them. And my feeling is look, if Ice Cube was a problem, then let them deal with it with him as their problem. You know, and and I and there was there have been other examples like that where um I what was it? Uh when Kyrie Irving, the NBA player. You know, he got in trouble because he tweeted something, right? Which is hilarious, right? So he he, re, he didn't even tweet it; he retweeted something. <laughs> so he got in trouble for the retweet. What happened during the Kyrie Irving thing? Does anybody remember that? Who were the first people to publicly attack him? Was it white folks, or was it people like Shaquille O'Neal, or gatekeepers like Charles Barkley? Like, like, and I was sitting there thinking. I said, "Why do you care? Like, what what is why who who made it your job?" To shut him down. Well, this is an old Negro tradition. This is what we do. This is we go and we say, "Oh, don't worry about this massive." We, we I got it. I got it. Malcolm X uh, talked about that in a speech. Remember that way he said, uh, "When when a, when a black man like me shows up, uh, they didn't kill him. He said they would send the house Negro, old house Negro, behind him, and to just basically undo everything that he said." Right. So effectively, that same uh, that same idea is still there. Uh, some of these pastors have volunteered for the job, maybe because they need the money. So they get the big check. Next thing you know, your pastor 
who's supposed to be preaching to you about the Bible is suddenly preaching to you about making sure that you get your jabs, you get jabbed up so that you can be protected from COVID. Again, I'm not saying you can't agree or disagree with the jab. It's up to you. But but I'm like, why is a pastor telling me to go get this shot? Uh, it, it, and the pastor might say, well, because I, I, I want to make sure that people are healthy. Okay, well, m- far more Black people die from diabetes, heart disease, strokes, and, and heart attacks, and high blood pressure than from COVID. So why aren't you every week preaching about healthy eating? Why aren't you every week preaching about putting down the Popeye's chicken and going to the gym? Why aren't you every week preaching about not eating the soul food that you're serving every Sunday for Sunday dinner that's giving Big Mama uh, high blood pressure and getting her toe cut off by the age of 62? Like, seriously, why, why, aren't, why isn't that part of your ministry? Why isn't health part of your ministry if you really care about Black people living? Well, because you're lying to me. You're lying to me. You're not saying these things because you care about Black people. You're saying these things because you're getting paid. There are There is so much evidence out there that the pharmaceutical companies who are writing massive checks to Black civil rights organizations because they wanted Black people to become the cash cow they needed to keep their, their stuff kind of moving. They made over $100 billion during that pandemic, and Black people were the first people they went to because they know that Black people are the best sheep in town. They know that, look, if you just get the pastor, <clears throat> get the pastors, get the rappers, rappers ain't nothing but pastors who cuss. That's it. Rappers ain't nothing but pastors who cuss. And unfortunately, some rappers even become teachers, but they're not teaching something healthy. They're teaching black male self-destruction, right? So, <clears throat> so you get your pastors, you get your rappers, you get your politicians, and you pay them some money to go out and push any ridiculous message that we have for black folks, and that's how you get them on board. Again, <clears throat> I'm not telling you what to think. I have to keep repeating this only because when you're on a platform like mine and you reach a lot of people, people love to twist your words. They love to say you said things you did not say. So I repeat myself a lot. I apologize for that, but I have to because I know that someone grabs this message and they say, Dr. Boyce is telling Black people not to vote, or Dr. Boyce is telling Black people to become Republicans, or Dr. Boyce is telling Black people they shouldn't get the jab. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying Black people should be free to make their own choice. So um, so again, I'm still trying to figure out, and, and maybe the pastors can help me with this, I don't understand if you're if you're preaching from the Bible and, and then why are you deviating from the Bible to tell me who to vote for in the next election? It is 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 vote for the Democrats. Which book of the Bible does it say vote for the Democrats or vote for the Republicans or whatever? Where where does it say that? Why do I I don't need, I don't want to hear that from you. Save my soul. Give me some stories from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy or something. But don't tell me that I need to make sure I vote for Joe Biden and we're going to all go vote after church because Hillary Clinton came to visit your church and made a big fat donation, right? Uh, Don't tell me to get a jab. I don't need you preaching about jabs to me. You're not a medical doctor. You're a pastor. Shut up. Um, I don't need you preaching to me about things like abortion or, uh, or gay rights. I don't need my pastor telling me again, I'm not, I'm not telling you what people should think, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that, that the pastor should be talking about being gay or being trans or getting an abortion. I just don't get that. And I'm not saying you should be anti or pro or pro-choice, pro-life. None of that. You can choose whatever you want. But the pastor, who, can y'all help me with this? Who said the, that preachers should be preaching about gay, trans, uh, bisexual, you know, abortion, getting your jab, vote for the Democrats, all that's because of the money. <clears throat> this is where I pop in and I put my finance professor hat on. And I tell you, 
that the money is the motive. The money is the motive. If they started, uh, oh, oh, by the way, and some of the pastors get so much money, they start telling you that immigration is always good for black people, that uh, letting illegal immigrants into the country is going to help you. I'm not saying that you should agree or disagree, but there's a lot of evidence to say that when you're letting people across the border in droves and then plopping them into black neighborhoods and having them take everybody's job, that, <clears throat> that there should be a point where you turn the faucet off. There should be a point where you say, no, no, because Dr. Anderson writes about this. He says he predicted this 30 years ago that eventually immigrants are going to replace you because they don't really, you know, black people are a pain in the ass to the Democratic Party. You're a pain in the butt. And especially if you're intelligent, intelligent black people, like I think if they could, if they could just go have us all exterminated and put in prison, they would. Right. Because intelligent black people ask questions. Intelligent black people expect something in return. Intelligent black people don't go along with the status quo. So, so that makes you a pain in the butt. Right. So they'll work with you because they need you, but they're really waiting for the day that they don't need you anymore. They're doing everything they can to cycle you out so they can have somebody else that's going to support them. That's going to be the immigrants in about 10, 15 years. The black vote will be diminished and diluted almost to nothing, completely suppressed to being completely, almost completely worthless in about a decade or so. Dr. Anderson talks about this extensively in Powernomics and Black Labor, White Wealth. Um, to some extent, you're kind of to the Democratic Party what employees are to Amazon. Amazon employees right now, they're on strike because of working conditions and stuff like that. Amazon hates having to deal with employees. They deal with them because they have to. But there's a reason why Amazon right now is literally on the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. They're also buying a thousand robots a day. And the reason they're buying a thousand robots a day is because they're like, we can't wait to get rid of all these human beings that are asking for bathroom breaks and higher wages and, and all these other things like benefits. Robots don't ask for those things. Robots don't need a bathroom break. Robots don't go to sleep. They work all day. They don't complain. And as long as you give them maintenance, they will do the job. They have superhuman strength, superhuman intelligence, and they, and they can do things that a human being can't do. So they're going to replace a lot of their workforce with robots. Well, the same way they're going to replace a lot of their workforce with robots, the Democratic Party wants to replace a lot of its Black base with people from other countries. That's one of the reasons why they want just, if they could literally let every Mexican on the entire planet into the country tomorrow, they probably would, right? And so, so as a black person who cares about black people, I just say, I don't really see, I don't see any reason for that. Now, if you wanted to let in every Haitian on the earth, I might vote for that. Oh, you want to let in every person from Ghana? Uh, okay, I'll vote for that. I got some friends from Ghana, Ghana. You know, I went to Ghana, I love Ghana, right? Now, if you want to do that, that's cool. But uh, one of the other things Dr. Anderson blows the lid off of, these are things you won't learn in school. This is why it's important for your kids to read books like this instead of just learning what they learn in school. He, he told you that there was a, an immigration quota. When they started in, in immigration in the first place, they already had a quota that said that the darker your skin color, the less of you that they would let in. And when they, it's so in, British people, they, they can all come over in infinite supply in the beginning. And the darker you got, the lower the number got to the point where they got to Africans and it said zero. They didn't start letting Africans into America until the 1960s. You hear me? They didn't start letting Africans into America until the 1960s. So effectively, uh, there's a goal to kind of water you down and weed you out and eliminate you as, 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 as a variable in any of this. So when we talk about things like voter suppression, okay, fine, talk about the Republicans, but I think you need to talk about the Democrats. Because um, let's look up the word suppression. Let me see here. Uh, all right, so suppression. 
All right, let me see. I'm gonna look up the definition of suppression. Okay, the definition of suppression is the act of suppressing something such as an activity or publication, um, stoppage or reduction of a discharge or, or secretion. That's kind of weird. Um, I don't, I don't like that. Let me find another one. Let's see here. An act of instance or of suppressing the state of being suppressed. Okay. So uh, I will say this, when I look at this definition, I can tell you that suppression in terms of reducing the likelihood that your vote actually counts. I argue that voter suppression happens across the board. I argue that the Republicans are not the only group that is responsible for suppressing the black vote. Yes, they do pass laws to try to make it harder for you to get to the polls and they gerrymander and try to liquidate out districts that are not going to vote Republican. They do all those things. But when I hear a Democrat tell me that they really want me to vote, but they put a gun to my head and tell me you better vote for me. Well, that to me is just as a, just as much a form of voter suppression as telling me not to vote at all. It's literally the exact same thing. Uh, it, it's like um, it's like me getting a, a a gift for my wife, but the gift I get her every year is a vacuum cleaner or something that allows her to serve me better, as opposed to getting a gift that she actually wants. She says, you know, for for my my birthday, um, I want. I want flowers, and instead of getting her flowers, I get her a football and an and 80-inch a television that's going to go into my man cave. Well, that's not me showing love for my wife. That's really me showing love for myself disguised as love for my wife. I'm not giving her the chance to fulfill her happiness, right? I'm, I'm fulfilling my own, right? So effectively, uh, I think you got to really think carefully about uh, the voter suppression topic. And, and really realize that voter suppression isn't just somebody telling you you can't vote. If they're also forcing you to vote for the same party, well, then that's that's just an, that's just as bad. Uh, you know, so anyway, um, uh, one thing some of you are asking about this. Yeah, if you go to my website, there's something I put up there. I put up a training called um, How to Become a Millionaire in five, with Five Minutes a Month. And I did this training maybe about a year ago. And uh, I put it up there and put a discount on it. So if you'd like to go take a look at that, just go to my website, boyswalkins.com. It's right up there. Um, and also uh, the All Black National Convention. Uh, I hope you guys are uh, are looking forward to that and going to show up in Atlanta to hang out with us. Uh, it is October 20th through the 22nd at the Marriott Marquis Hotel and the All Black National Convention. I guarantee you're going to love it. Uh, in fact, if you've been there, like say something in the chat, please. So other people will know how great the convention is. Uh, it's literally my favorite time of the year. It's like it's like Christmas for B1 people, in my opinion. And so uh, if you're black and intelligent and you want to be around other intelligent black people, uh, just go to allblacknationalconvention.com. I also put some links on my website. Uh, someone asked about the hotel information. Yeah, uh, the hotel information should be at allblacknationalconvention.com. So take a look. And if you don't see it, uh, let me know in the chat and I'll, I'll I'll message the team. But it should it should all be there. All right. So um, uh, all right. So here's the thing. Um, you know, black people, um, I think churches, let's go back to churches. Churches uh, help us to become successful. But unfortunately, churches, when they're misused or they haven't been taught their uh, their power, uh, become very harmful for black people. Um, and uh, misguided churches are are one of the wasted opportunities. And, 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 and I think that's what Dr. Anderson is trying to say. And so uh, especially when you're talking about churches that are hijacked politically, uh, where they're pursuing an agenda that isn't consistent with something that's going to put black people at the top of the list. And so one of the biggest uh, remedies for this is this thing called common sense. So common sense to me just says that if you can't see clearly how a certain policy is going to help you and the people you love, then, you know, 
um, then I don't I don't think you have to actually support that. You know, I, I don't think that uh, that black people have to vote. Honestly, I'm not saying that black people shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that at all. I'm make that clear. I don't think I'm not saying black people. Uh, I'm not saying black people shouldn't vote. I'm saying you don't have to vote uh, because when you look at that word freedom, freedom means doing what you want to do and doing what makes sense to you. So if it makes sense to you not to vote, um, I'll give you an example. When I was uh, 21 years old, uh, Bill Clinton was kind of the big thing. I remember Bill Clinton was uh, presented. They, they did the same election tricks 30 years ago that they do right now. This is literally 30 years ago today. I had a job at Arby's and I used to ride my bike to Arby's to go to work. And I remember Bill Clinton was running for office. And this is way back, actually 31 years ago. That's how I know I'm aging myself. But it was 1992. And uh, I was riding my bike to Arby's, and I remember I that I I because I was a Democrat in in every way, uh, I knew I had to show up and vote for Bill Clinton because they convinced us that uh, that the the other candidate, I guess it was Bush, would you know destroy our lives, turn us into slaves, and kill us all. Right? That's what they do. They they use fear. Right? So I felt like getting Bill Clinton into office was really important. I made that part of my job. So I remember getting on my bike and I was riding right past one of the polling places to vote for Bill Clinton. And I was going to stop, park my bike, get in line and vote. But the line to vote was pretty long. And it, I, I had to work. Let's, let's say I had to work at three o'clock. It took me 10 minutes to ride my bike across campus. It was already 250 or 248 or 250. So I was already short on time. Um, and I knew that if I stopped to vote for Bill Clinton, that I was going to be late for my job at Arby's and possibly get fired. So here was what my logic was. This was what my common sense told me. I said to myself at the age of 21, I said, if I lose my job at Arby's, Bill Clinton is not going to come help me pay my rent. And I was 21 paying rent. I was paying my own bills. I wasn't one of these college kids that had mom and daddy sending them a check every week. I didn't have none of that. So, so I remember thinking if I get homeless because I can't pay my bills because I lose my job at Arby's because I was in line voting for Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton ain't coming to save me. I got to save myself. So you know what I did? I kept pedaling my bike past the polling place. I said, I'm sorry, Bill. I can't take care of you because I got to take care of me. And, and so my point is to say that I don't think there's anything wrong with that logic. I look back and I'm very proud of that 21-year-old kid who didn't falsely believe that if he lost his job because he was late, because he was voting for Bill Clinton, that Clinton was going to come through and 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 save save my situation. Nobody, I didn't have any friends. And that's black people. You ain't got no friends. You don't have any friends. You don't have anybody that's really out there looking for you. You don't have politicians that have your back. The Congressional Black Caucus doesn't even have your back half the time. So, so you got to look out for you. If you ain't looking out for you, then who the hell's gonna look out for you? Who's gonna look out for you? So, so I'm just telling you, um, my vote politically is to say, do whatever the hell you want. Do something that's gonna benefit you and your legacy, you and your family, you and your community, you and your people around you. That's gonna start with you. Take care of you. That's how you win. That's how you succeed. Because I'll give you, I'll tell you a secret. Everybody else is doing it. And they love black people because we're the only people who've been consistently brainwashed to put everyone ahead of us, ahead of ourselves. So let me read some of this. This is um, page 226 of Poweronomics. Uh, Dr. Anderson's books are at poweronomics.com. I hope you will support him because he was gracious enough to allow me to teach from this book for this class. 
Um, I would not have done this if he had told me no. If he told me, like, I don't want you to do it, I wouldn't have done it. So Dr. Anderson and his wife were gracious enough to allow me to do this class. And we've been doing this. We've been meeting every Wednesday night uh, for uh, three years. And uh, and it's because Dr. Anderson gave the blessing. If he hadn't given the blessing, I wouldn't have disrespected him and, and done this. So so if you go to powernomics.com and find those books for your family and stuff like that, uh, I'd really appreciate we support him, okay? So here on the positive side, he says, the use of Bible scriptures to control and render Black people passive, pliable, and accepting has never worked with all Blacks. Instead of using the Bible to teach Blacks to be all-forgiving, long-suffering, with a turn the other cheek attitude, some independent black ministers, see, this is where the, this is where you get the, to the good side of the church, where the church has been empowering for black people. He says some independent ministers um, uh, use the scriptures to embolden blacks to oppose and escape slavery. They themed uh, compliance with social policies and instead preached coded sermons. They gave hope to black slaves. They helped the black masses by fashioning a different sense of reality within the, <laughs> me, within the Christian religion by teaching them to identify with the plight of Jews in the Bible and providing resources to escape slavery. Following the Civil War, many black ministers, especially those in the African Methodist Episcopal AME churches, aggressively asserted their spiritual independence. In the mid-1860s, over 100 ex-slaves walked into St. Paul's AME Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and demanded that the church help the 5 million newly freed slaves who were poor, hungry, ignorant, homeless, and defenseless. Black churches responded to this and similar demands across the South and provided food and clothing. Within a decade, they used the churches to start banks, newspapers, benevolent societies, insurance companies, burial societies, and other Black businesses. Black churches eventually became the repositories of Black culture, music, wealth, and leadership. More importantly, Black ministers began their use of churches as training grounds for community and business leaders. So this is what I'm talking about. This is why I don't want you out here blanketly condemning Black churches everywhere. Don't do that. Don't be more thoughtful than that. Don't say, well, all these churches, man, these churches, are stop that. There's thousands of churches out here. There's thousands of pastors. I've met a bunch of them. There, Some of them are doing a good job. Some of y'all in here are pastors. Some of you are bishops, deacons, all, all that stuff, right? And, and some of them are really fighting the good fight because here's the thing about God. Uh, I believe in God deeply, um, but I don't go to church. Uh, and that's how much I believe in God. I believe in God so much that I realize that God doesn't need me to go to church for me to connect to God. So because church gets in the way of God, just like universities can get in the way of being a scholar, the, the politics and the bureaucracy gets in the way of being a true scholar and a true teacher. So uh, so the same way I like to teach directly and be a scholar directly by engaging the world and not dealing with campus bureaucracy, which would waste my time. I also believe that when you talk about preaching, the best way to preach is to go directly to the people, do God's work directly. Don't let the bureaucracy get in your way, because the thing about God, in my opinion, is that God really is the hidden superpower of Black people. There's nothing more powerful than a determined Black person that believes to the core of his soul that God has his back. That person has the ability to take risks. That person will never back down. That person can charge into the fire with no fear. Faith, which is something that you have in abundance, gives you the ability to build the bridge between that which is possible and that which is impossible. Faith is what allowed me to do the things that I do. The, the faith is where you can walk into the abyss of the unknown and just know it's going to be all right. Everything is everything. What is meant to be will be. 
God's going to work it all out. That I do that every day, all the time, right? So, so don't walk away from what God can do for you, right? Don't walk away from it like, oh man, I want to be an atheist and all. I don't, I don't understand atheism, to be honest with you, because I don't understand how you can be arrogant enough to think that you know where you came from. I don't think, I don't see, I don't understand how you can be arrogant enough to act like you know exactly where we come from as humans. You did not create yourself. Something created you. Some force created you. It's probably a force you will never understand. Just like an automobile can't figure out, even an, an automobile with artificial intelligence can't figure out who built them and why, right? They don't know why. They, all a car knows is how to be a car. A car doesn't know how to figure out, well, what was the, my purpose of my existence and why and who created me and what was my creator like? A car, was it maybe it was another car that built me as a car. I'm, I'm a car and God built me in his image. So the, my creator must be a car. A car doesn't know these things. A car knows none of that. So to some extent, as human beings, it's the same way. We just here, we're here. We are what we are. We don't know where we came from. And I think it's kind of crazy to say, oh, I know all the answers. That, that just doesn't make sense to me, whether you are preaching from the Bible or you are an atheist. I, I, I'm in between. I just have faith. So faith is powerful. And what Dr. Anderson is referring to, which is very important, because I don't think that we have to sit here and talk bad about Black churches all day. Um, he's saying that the church has been a massive and powerful catalyst for some of the greatest Black liberation struggles of all time. Uh, Nat Turner got his courage <clears throat> to go chop off master's head from God. God told him to do that. God gave, God told him it's going to be all right, right? So and, and, and even though he died, remember, Nat Turner died thinking that he failed. But think about this. We're talking about this man 300, 200 something years later. So I don't think he failed. I think he died for something amazing, right? So ultimately, um, you know, the church can do some really good things for the black community. You just have to tap into that power. And don't let other people steal that power. Churches reminds me of hip hop. You know, hip hop is like that. Hip hop uh, was one of the most powerful forms of messaging in the black community. Hip hop came along and everyone loved it. Everybody connected to it. You could sh share a message through hip hop and really elevate people to a higher level through hip hop. Uh, KRS-One did it. Chuck D did it. A lot of people did it. <clears throat> then other people that saw the power of hip hop said, we need to take control of this thing. And we're going to take the faucet that they're drinking from and just put poison in it. So they'll be drinking from the poisonous faucet of hip hop and it will destroy them the way drugs destroyed them during the crack era. Well, uh, I think the same thing is true of the church. I think there are people who said, oh man, we, we, we got to figure out how to control these Negroes. And we know they listen to their celebrities and they listen to their pastors. So if we can use our money, this is where I'm putting on my finance professor hat again, because I understand money and the power of money. We're going to use our money because I'm white. I'm a white man. I've, I can print money. Negroes love money. Oh, these black people that worship money. Oh, I can control them. They're easy. They're easy slaves because we, every, everyone has a price. So we're going to, we're going to go in and use our money. We're going to buy off all their pastors or as many as we can. We're going to buy off uh, their, their, uh, their rappers, right? Because their rappers are talking to the people uh, and we're going to do whatever we can. Oh, we're going to also own, own their media, we're going to create, we're going to have this network called Black Entertainment Television that's owned by a bunch of Jewish people. And we're going to use that to push messages that are consistent with what we want Black people to do. And that's one of the reasons why when we do, when we talk about financial lessons, I can teach you everything you want to know on this earth about money. 
But one of the first things I need to help you understand is the power of what you're learning. It's almost like learning black magic or something. Magic is very powerful. And so if I'm like the financial wizard, if I'm the wizard teaching you financial magic, the first thing I want you to understand about the magic is how powerful the magic is. You know, or like if you're a doctor and you go in and you're becoming a surgeon and they give you access to the most powerful drugs, propofol and stuff like that. First thing they teach you is safety, drug safety. And they say, do not take this drug unless you absolutely have to, because it is addictive. This, this, this oxycodone will kill you. This, uh, whatever that's uh, the fentanyl, you don't want to mess around with this, right? So the same thing is true when you're talking about, uh, about financial power and, and all these other things. The thing about financial power is you can't get high on your own supply. You cannot get to the point where everything is for sale. Uh, you have to have something. If you want to compete in an economically competitive society as a black person that doesn't have as much access to economic resources, then you have to attract, connect value to certain things that money cannot buy, right? It's like if I come into your house and you're holding a, a yard sale and you are selling uh, things in order to make money, that's fine. That makes sense, right? If you're having a yard sale at your house because you want to make some extra money, Totally fine. But you have to draw boundaries and let people know when they come in what is for sale and what is not. You do not yell to the neighborhood, everything I have is for sale, because they might come in and they'll be like, they're buying, they're, next thing you know, they're buying your grandma's pictures. They're buying your daddy's ashes. They're buying your daughter because you got a pervert down the street that wants to, to own a 16-year-old girl, right? And so, so you have to make it clear what's for sale and what's not. You know, and so I always ask people that are interested in money and wealth and understanding, I say, what do you really have in your life that is more valuable than money? You know, because if you don't understand that, if you can't draw those boundaries, if you don't have something about your culture and your values that, that money cannot buy, then they're going to own you lock, stock and barrel because they've got an infinite supply of money. They can buy anything that they want. They literally, you can't compete. I'm sorry, right now, at least in this generation, in this century, black people can't don't have the same access to economic resources as white people do because white men can actually print their own money. So so what I would say to you is is make sure you understand the power of that money so you can have the appropriate boundaries because it, it, because what effectively occurs is they say okay we we want to control black people. Um let's just write a check. And but if you're a person who says no there's no check big enough that you can write to get me to get off this perch that I'm on then that creates a whole different type of negotiation, right? It's just like dating. Like think about the difference between, uh, imagine a woman who's trying to find a man. And let's say that she's a woman who never learned anything about how to make money, doesn't have any money, is struggling to pay the bills, has a hard time getting by, and then has two kids she's got to take care of by herself. She's going to search for a man differently than say another woman who uh, is financially literate, financially secure, has plenty of money in the bank, has high cash flow, multiple streams of income, and has a wealthy family. The, the woman from the wealthy family is going to probably pick differently than the woman who is struggling for money. The woman who's struggling for money has to fulfill a deficiency. She's going to pick some man that maybe isn't as nice to her, maybe isn't as good looking, maybe isn't, isn't going to make her as happy because he's got the money to provide for her. The second woman can pick on different criteria. She can say, I don't care about your money. I don't need your money. Like, now, now show me something. Give me, you need to do something else to impress me, to get me to allow you to come into the sacred space called my house. No, you, you can't buy your way into my body uh, because I, I don't, again, I, you, there's not enough money. There's not a check big enough that you could write that will give you access to this thing that is sacred to me called my womb. 
right? You have to earn your way in some other way, but you can't earn it by writing a check. Whereas in the first scenario, you might be tempted to let a guy in because he, because he's balling, right? Because he's got some extra cash in his pocket. So for, so for black people, uh, this is also important to think about when it comes to your kids. If you have them show up to the world whole and complete, they're better able to obtain this elusive thing called freedom than someone who isn't whole and complete. If you have an 18-year-old who is uneducated, financially insecure, um, and, and, and stuck in a, in a tough situation, they're going to have to make some pretty ugly choices just to survive relative to the types of kids, the B1 kids that I want to see, which, uh, which are going to be the ones that show up with an inheritance. They're going to show up with uh, investing knowledge. They're going to show up with uh, some money in the bank. They're going to show up with options and opportunities. And they're probably going to show up with a wealthy family because you're investing right now and you're going to build that, right? So that child, that second child, can make different choices than the first child. They have greater access to their happiness than the first person. So, so never get to the point where everything that you have is for sale. Part of the reason that the Black community struggles is because so many of your churches and your leaders and your entertainers are for sale. Why are they for sale? Well, because they have financial problems. And when you have financial problems, your ethics, your ethical boundaries get stretched and you get to the point where you're willing to do almost anything and everything for money. Even myself sitting here talking to you crazy the way I talk every single day, you'd really think I could do this if I was not financially secure. Do you really think I could do this if I was, uh, if I had a job at CNN and I'm trying to keep my job? Do y'all really think that I would be able to talk like this if I was trying to main, hold on to my position at Syracuse University and not get fired? You, do you really think so? No. So I knew that the first assignment that I had to fulfill in order for me to truly become my best self and fulfill my purpose that I believe God gave me was I said, I got to be financially independent and I got to disconnect from all those systems that are designed to control Black people. I, I got to be able to walk away from anything and everything. So that when they try to do what they do, economics is warfare, right? So when they try to impose economic sanctions on me, right, they, by locking me out or taking wealth away, I'm able to insulate myself from that to some extent. Um, I, I, you know, a few years ago, I had a controversy in the media, and I won't talk about it, but you can probably Google it. And uh, I had a speech I was supposed to give, and I was going to get paid to give the speech. And uh, because the, the Black people that were holding the event in Birmingham, Alabama, the AG Gaston Society, was funded by big white corporations, they canceled my speech. It wasn't because the Black people didn't want me there, because I spoke the year before, and they loved me. I gave a great speech. I, I'm a good speaker. Uh, they, but it was because their white corporate sponsors, who were paying the bills, said this Negro is unacceptable. So because they have to uh, respond to and answer to that higher authority that's writing the check, they pretty much had to cancel me out. I didn't care. I wasn't offended. I It's like, okay, whatever. You know, you paid your deposit. You gave me half the money. So I, that's great. I get a few thousand dollars for doing no work. I'm not mad about that. But at the same time, it was a great economic lesson because I knew, I said, I know that y'all really want me there. You really want me to come back and speak because I looked you in the eye last year and I talked to your audience and I know how much they love me. So I need to understand uh, whether you understand how this economic leverage over the black community causes us to live outside of our true purpose. Your true purpose is for you and I to connect. Your true purpose is for us to do what we're supposed to do, but you can't fulfill your true purpose because you're stuck wearing a Burger King uniform. You're stuck wearing, I, I've used that analogy before, I'm going to use it again. 
you're wearing the Burger King uniform. So what do I mean by that? Well, it means that if you have a cousin that's that that come that 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 is hungry or something, and you want or you want to spend time with that cousin and help them get food or whatever, and you work at Burger King and you got your uniform on and you say, uh, my cousin's here, I want my cousin to eat, or I want to hang out with my cousin. Well, if you're wearing your Burger King uniform, you can't do that. Because Burger King is going to say, no, you need to get your black ass back behind the counter. And, and no, you can't feed your cousin unless your cousin can pay, right? So ultimately, you get separated from your cousin because you've got to serve Burger King. Burger King is your master now because you're not financially independent enough to tell Burger King to kiss your black ass so you can do what you're supposed to do. You're really supposed to be with your cousin, but Burger King bought their way into the family and became your cousin. They said, no, we're your cousin now, boy. You're not free. You, you think, what do you think this was? We run everything up in here, boy, and you've got to do what they say. So what I'm saying is don't put your children in the Burger King uniform. Right. So when I go back to that speech and again, I'm not making fun of that, that group, but I, I I did. I talked about it. I was like, let's talk about this. Let's really understand this and break this down as a financial lesson. You don't run your event with all these corporate sponsors that are going to tell you that the black people that help you the most are the unacceptable Negroes. How dare you as a white man tell me that I can't talk to my brother? I don't tell you who you can talk to. Do we get to tell Jewish people? Well, you can't talk to that rabbi. He's too radical. No, we can't do that. Do we go to Asian people and say, well, you can't talk to that Asian guy because he's inappropriate. We don't do that. We can't do that. Why? Because we can't afford to do that. We don't have the power to do that. Because they understand that you don't let outsiders fund the most critical necessities of your institution or of your community. You don't let outsiders pay all your bills because they're going to call the shots. He who has the goal makes the rules. So when you see, this is why at the All Black National Convention, you will not see Black liberation brought to you by McDonald's because when you see that, that means McDonald's is calling the shots. That means I, I can't bring I can't bring Rizza Islam to speak at the convention if it's sponsored by Walmart or Merck or something like that. I can't do that. And so when people come up and they say, yeah, you know, this convention is big. You can get these corporate sponsors. I'm like, eh, no, I, I don't really want to do that. All money ain't good money. I can smell money. I can smell it because I'm, I'm, I'm a professor at it. I, I, obsess, I understand it really well. So, so I can smell good money and bad money. I'm like, eh, I, don't, I don't think I want that money. I don't, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> oh, Doc, you're, you're a great financial influencer. You could probably get a bank to sponsors. Yeah, but I don't, you know, can we find some other way to get the money? Because that's not, I, I don't, I don't like that. That makes me shift in my seat. Why, why do I do that? Well, because I don't want to end up like those poor people with the AG Gaston conference. You, you know, instead of trying to have the conference that they will fund you for, why don't you just have the convention that you can afford? Why don't you say, you know what? We could get a million dollars if we get a bunch of sponsors and a bunch of white people to write checks, but they're going to tell us what to do. But, it's, but we really want to be truly effective. We want to truly connect with the best black folks that have the best ideas. So instead of you, you know, taking the million dollars from people that are going to tell us what to do, instead of putting on the Burger King uniform, we're going to simply raise a quarter million dollars from the, all the, the intelligent, wealthy black people that are in our group that are, that are working and doing well. And we're going to do, we're going to scale things down, but we're going to keep it free. We're going to stay free and independent. See, sometimes you think everything that's bigger is better. And sometimes being bigger means you're less effective. You can, everybody is not cut out to be your partner or your benef benefactor, especially when you're doing critical work that is 
supposed to be a driving force in the progress of black people. Some partnerships you can't take, but but unfortunately, because we don't understand money that well, we take money from anybody. And then, and you don't understand that some people will write you a check just so they can threaten to take that check away from you. It's just like what we do with our kids. To be honest with you, I, I the most dangerous child in our house is the child that doesn't want anything. You know why he's the most dangerous and hardest to control in our house? It's because um, I don't have anything I can take away from him. But the easiest child to control, seriously, some parents, if smart parents do this, do this with your kids, it works. We, me and my wife do it all the time. See, our kids don't understand that they, they have the curse of living with two college professors. So every time they think they're smarter than us, they don't realize, girl, please, we're 30 years ahead of you. But seriously, the one that's gonna that's easiest to control is the one who wants things. Like, oh, I want a Gucci bag. I want a coach. I want this. I want that, right? It's like, oh, okay, now we got something that we can take away from you. So, so, so you got to understand this when it comes to money. Money is power. And sometimes, uh, you know, waiting to make money in a way that makes sense, that is ethical and safe, is better than simply jumping on the bandwagon of anything that anybody will write a check for. All right, so let me keep going. Let me keep reading. So uh, Dr. Anderson is talking about the Black Church on page 226 of Powernomics. His website is powernomics.com. If you want to uh, take a look at his books, I encourage you to support this man. He's one of the greatest uh, economic thinkers in history, and I think he deserves that respect. Uh, and also, uh, some of you are asking about the $5 a day investing plan. If you go to boycewalkins.com, it's up there. There's also that training, how to make money without working, uh, as well as financial flashcards for kids and all kinds of stuff. So feel free to take a look at that. Um, in the Black Business School, I'm very proud to say that we've uh, actually helped well over 10 million people earn uh, buy their first share of stock. So our goal is to make B1 people the most economically intelligent group of people on the planet. And we are well on our way. We're ahead of schedule. But the goal is to have that by the year 2070. So it's actually going to happen probably after I'm dead. But I want to sort of get the ball rolling. And then we're going to let your kids and grandkids take over from there. All right. So out of the box religious teaching, many looked at looked to the Old Testament and identified with biblical characters such as Moses, Joshua, and Samson in their struggles to free their people. They saw aspects of these stories that whites did not teach. The story of Samson in the book of Judges provides a particularly inspiring and non-traditional role model for Black religious leaders. The model of Samson obligates Black leaders to be more protective of their Black followers, just as Samson was of his fellow Jews. Dr. Anderson, by the way, I hope you don't mind me telling you this, but he said he grew up really admiring Samson. He said he really wanted to lift his people up. So he sees himself as a Samson. Right? You know, that's and he is. He's 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 the Hercules, in my opinion. He's he's a great black man and he really has lifted his people up. Without him, there is no me. The story of Samson and Delilah was not just a morality story of a man's betrayal by a woman or about Samson being punished for giving in to the weakness of the flesh. It was a story of a man who God brought into the world with unique strengths and powers. As an instrument of God, Samson loved and championed the causes of his people. But Samson was not a priest or a man of the cloth. He never saw himself as being perfect. He gambled. He drank wine. He chased women, committed violent acts. Samson was a, a Danite commis commissioned to provoke the Philistines and when necessary to stand up to them. He was not sent to the earth to get along with the enemies of his people. The story of Samson is about unconventional, out-of-the-box thinking. The lesson in the story of Samson is that even when blind, he remained committed to fighting his people's enemies, regardless of personal sacrifices he had to make. Today, as in Samson's time, the system that is oppressing Black people stands upon two pillars. One, a structural, economic, and political inequality between the races. That's one pillar. A structural, economic, and political inequality between the races. And two the learned inappropriate behavior patterns of 
black people. So basically he's saying that we are complicit in our own oppression. The structure exists and we are holding the structure up because we are so committed to inappropriate thinking. So I'm gonna read it again. He says, the two pillars of black oppression, write this down, this is important. These are the two things we gotta fix. One, structural, economic, and political inequality between the races. And two, the learned behavior of, of black people, the learned and inappropriate behavior patterns of black people that you have been taught to just act a damn fool and to fit right into your oppression, to do things that make it easier to oppress you. It ain't your fault. It's a mental illness that was injected in you before you were born, most likely. It was injected into your culture. The drug culture was injected into you. Think about this. We got rappers like Rick Ross running around here rapping about how great it is to be a, a, be a drug kingpin. Come on now, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? Did, did, does anybody know any Jewish rappers that rap about how great it is to be a kingpin? Anybody know any Asian rappers that are making millions of dollars telling other Asian kids to become drug dealers? And say, I'm, I'm a boss, I'm a boss, I'm a boss. Where did that come from? I need you to process this for a minute. Where did it come from? It came from drug culture. Where did drug culture come from? Well, anybody remember the CIA putting all that crack in black communities? And then, and then letting the cartels in where they could put the weapons and the crack? Because you get the crack, you're selling your crack, you got to defend your, your crack. So next thing you know, there's killing all throughout black neighborhoods. There's drugs everywhere. In fact, raise your hand. Give me a yes in the chat if you have been affected by drugs. Give me a yes in the chat if you've either been addicted to drugs or had a relative addicted to drugs. Give me a yes in the chat if you have had a relative incarcerated for drugs. Give me a yes in the chat if you have had a relative killed over drugs, uh, et cetera. Give me a yes. Or if you were traumatized by the chaos in your neighborhood, give me a yes. This is almost everybody. Everybody, It's like a big thundercloud that covered the whole community. Everybody got wet when this rainstorm hit. It was a tsunami. On the black, it was a cultural tsunami. It was a cultural hurricane, and I, 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 I need us to pause on that because I need you to understand that that this is one of the ways culture gets created. This is where culture comes from. Now, thirty years later, you've got all these lost young people who grew up without parents, who grew up in the middle of chaos, who grew up with parents that were incarcerated, who grew up with parents that were on dope, who grew up with parents that were dead who grew up in all these chaotic situations they shouldn't have lived in. And then next thing you know, because you're making lemons out of lemonade, you're rapping about it, singing about it, and celebrating it. So Rick Ross comes along and says, I'm a boss because I'm a fat man sitting on a Miami beach with eight gold chains, riding in a riding in some kind of speedy boat with some pretty women in bikinis and a bottle of something in one hand with my gun on the other hip with a big old briefcase full of money. And you think that that's black success. That is black death on a platter. That is sick culture. That's death culture. I'm not trying to be mean to Rick Ross at all. I'm, I'm, I don't know where he stands. I've never met this man. And I'm not specifically talking about him. He's not the only one. But literally, that, 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 that image, those images are far more prominent for young black children than the images of a hardworking black man getting up every day and making an honest living. Those images are far more prominent than the black kids sitting in the library 12 hours a day to get through medical school so he can become a top level surgeon. Let me just tell you, in fact, to tell you how crazy the politics get, I grew up with a mother who told me stories about a guy named Dr. Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson is friends with Dr. Mary and Marcus Stoddard. 
Let me tell you the story about Mary and Marcus Stoddard in Louisville, Kentucky, and then we'll talk about Ben Carson and we'll talk about bad culture and how it all connects and relates. So Mary Stoddard is an attorney and she's also a PhD. She is a badass black woman if there ever was one. She literally gave birth and then the next day drove 70 miles so she could walk across the stage for her law school graduation. I'm talking about badass to the fullest. But Mary Stoddard, if you go back, she grew up on a cotton field plantation. She grew up picking cotton with her 17 brothers and sisters. All 17 of those kids graduated from college. Do you hear me? 17 kids, dire poverty, worse to conditions because they had a plan, because they had a strategy, because they, they reached back and helped each other, each other out. Every single one of them finished college. Every single one of them became successful. Why? Well, because they had expectations. They had standards. They had a code of conduct. They had a plan. They weren't a sloppy ass family just sitting here thinking that whatever happens to them is just going to happen and there's nothing they can do about it. They said, oh, no, we're going to create our own reality. We know we ain't got no friends. We're on a plantation, for God's sake. Don't nobody care about us. If we don't care about us, then ain't nobody going to care about us. So they went. They got it done. Do you understand how much you can learn if the story of Mary Stoddard growing up on a cotton plantation was heard as much as the image of Rick Ross's fat ass holding a bottle of liquor and, and a, a briefcase full of money on a beach in a bikini talking about he's a boss because he sold crack to the black community? Do you understand how sick that is? Imagine how many kids would be inspired to hear stories like that. I'm not done. There's more to tell about the Stoddard family because I need us to go ahead and talk about this because I need you to, this is making a bigger point. God is helping me through this point. So I'm going to let it all out. Mary Stoddard then grows up and marries Dr. Marcus Stoddard, who is one of the top cardiology surgeons in the country. Mary and Marcus raised five children all five of their kids are PhDs or MDs. Every single one of their children became a doctor. Every one of them. This is the kind of story that I want to hear. I don't really care about somebody talking about they a boss because you sold crack. I don't want to hear about people talking about how great it is to go to prison. Prison ain't fun. Tupac told you that 30 years ago. So, so, so this is what you're up against. So, so Mary Stoddard raises five kids. All of them become doctors. This gets back to the politics of it all. One of their friends in the medical community happens to be a guy named Dr. Ben Carson. Now, let me tell you what I knew about Ben Carson. I did not know Ben Carson was going to be a Republican. I don't care that he was Republican. You know why I heard about Ben Carson when I was a little kid? My mother used to tell me stories about this famous surgeon Whose, whose mother gave birth to him when she was like 13 years old or something like that, something really young, and, 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 and pushed that little boy as they lived in the projects to become the best student he could be. And eventually, he performed surgeries that had never been done before. Why is that not an inspirational Black story that's being told to every ch child on this planet? It, it, why in the world are we even allowing people to tell you, well, you can't talk about Ben Carson in a good way because he's a Republican. He's a Republican. I don't give a shit. I don't care if he's an alien. I don't care if he was born on Mars. That's a good story for Black kids to hear. It's better than telling me 
about some rapper that talks about being a boss because he's selling cocaine. I don't want my kids hearing that story. Tell me the Ben Carson story. Leave the politics out of it. Stop telling me which black people I can look at as, as models for the community. Stop telling me which black people I can associate with. Oh, well, you can't talk to him. He's a Republican. He's, I don't care. I know that he did something amazing. Your political party should be secondary to the fact that you are committed to black excellence. Black excellence should trump Democrat, Republican bullshit. Seriously, how dare you tell me that I can't admire this man for his accomplishments just because he's in a different political party than me. I don't care. You made those rules. You're telling me who I can talk to and that's not appropriate. That's not gonna fly in my house. Now, again, I wanna make it clear. I'm not telling you to become a Democrat. I'm not telling you to become a Republican. I don't care what you vote for. You can take your ballot and throw it in the garbage or you could vote in every election. It's up to you. What I'm simply saying to you is that this is how deep the, 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 the cultural poison goes. They literally have you honoring people that promote death over people that give you life, hope, and possibility. That's a sickness. That's a mental illness. That's a cultural curse. That is a virus. That's bigger than COVID. COVID ain't got nothing on the virus of niggerosity. It's got nothing on this bad culture that's being pushed out here to our kids. And then you wonder why so many millions of black kids are losing. Well, why wouldn't you lose if you're looking up to losers? And what they've done is they've tricked you into believing that the losers are actually the winners and that the winners are the losers. Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about Ben Carson because he's a, he's a Republican. But, but, but yet we're going to get the president of the United States to do an interview with Cardi B, who's telling little girls to uh, rap about their vaginas and uh, how great it was to be a stripper and uh, that uh, all a woman has is her body, that she should sell her body for a Gucci bag. And y'all think this is normal. You think this is appropriate. And, 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 and here's the crazy part. If I were saying this and I was like a white man saying this, you would be trained to call me a racist. But I'm going to tell you the truth. You know, when you talk about, I'm talking about good white folks. I'm going to talk about the, the bad ones. I, mean, I don't believe I have any allies, but I don't hate every white person. I don't. I, I, and I want you to understand that. So if you're white and you come in here, you're welcome. That's fine. I'm not going to tell you to go away. I want you to understand what intelligent black people are thinking. But I find it crazy to me that if a white guy observes this and says, look at what they're promoting to black people. Look at what black boys are looking up to. This is going to get them killed. It's like, oh, you're racist. You're racist. Why? Wait, or I was rapping along to a song where you're calling yourself the N-word every other verse, and now you're saying I'm racist because I repeated the same thing you just said about yourself. That ain't making no sense. That doesn't make any sense. So, so what I would almost say to you is that, you know, going back to what Dr. Anderson talks about here, he's talking about role models, and he's talking about how he grew up looking up to Samson the strong black man who lifted up his whole community. That's a role model. Dope dealers are not good role models. And when you look at what that negative, that, that cultural injection did to black people, when you look at what uh, the, the crack era did to black people, followed by the mass incarceration era, what that did to black people, um, you know where this deformed culture comes from, right? But But it's very important to be clear about that and understand that this is one of the reasons why black success is 
is as rare as it is because your, your children are not being trained to look up to the right people. Let me keep going. All right, so, uh, so the two things he mentions here are one, structural, economic, and political inequality between the races. That's the one pillar of oppression. The second pillar is the learned, inappropriate behavior patterns of Black people. So in order for you to solve this problem, you must be willing to hold yourself accountable uh, because you don't have any friends. And the only way you're going to solve this problem is if you solve it yourself. And like earlier, we were talking about drugs and who was, who was impacted by drugs. My drug story is that my father, my biological father, was never in my life because he was in jail for drugs. My little brother, who would have been raised by my father, uh, he was in jail for selling drugs. Uh, I have other relatives in my family that got addicted to drugs. Drugs are very painful and drugs are a curse. Uh, so I'm very, very anti-drugs. So let, let me let me read the last little part here. I'm on page uh, 227. I'm reading Powernomics. The website is powernomics.com. Um, so uh, Dr. Anderson says the hour is late. He says a great number of societal factors, including the breakdown of the family, deterioration of black communities, a lack of moral standards, increased crime and integration, negatively impact black churches integration is one of the most detrimental why because to a large degree integration triggered many of the current so social pathologies that are crippling black communities churches also had to respond to changing neighborhoods some churches wel <laughs> welcomed the newcomers and abandoned their own blackness others welcomed the newcomers into the blackness of their church and maintained their cultural heritage heritage and orientation some white ministers moved into black neighborhoods and set up churches with black members the integration process has already compromised away our music, our colleges, our businesses, our sports teams, and our communities. By compromising away our blackness, whether it is inside or outside the church, we lose our common past and our common future aspiration. We become a people who are blind to reality. He says, a couple of years ago, while speaking at a community forum in a local high school auditorium in Ohio, a member of the planning committee advised me that a black minister of one of the city's largest black churches would not be attending the program. He anticipated that the program would focus on Black issues and Black rights. And as a minister, his concern was human rights, not Black rights. It seems that by focusing on human rights rather than Black rights, the minister implied that Blacks are less than human. Ironically, the first time the phrase human rights was made a public issue was in the 1850s in response to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. I didn't know that. Did y'all know that? Uh, it was later that human rights, like the concepts of minority and race, was expanded and watered down to include nearly everybody but Black people. Unfor <coughs> excuse me. Unfortunately, this minister is not unique. There are hundreds of Black pastors who have similar attitudes and avoid Black rights and Black people. Though the racial inequalities created by slavery and Jim Crow segregation continue to exist, apparently many ministers feel some obligation to protect white society's feelings by avoiding racial matters. Some do not. There are, there are two notable exceptions. On the West Coast, Dr. Frederick K.C. Price, pastor of Crenshaw Christian Center in Los Angeles, delivered a phenomenal year-long series of lectures on race, religion, and racism, which he later published as a book by the same name. Dr. Price approached the problems of race in the church with scholarship, integrity, and in an effort to educate. He chastised various religions on their institutionalized racism. On the East Coast in Washington, D.C., Dr. Earl Trent, the pastor of Florida Avenue Baptist Church, was equally committed. Dr. Trent teaches about the role of Blacks in the Bible, but he also focuses on economic economic development within the church. He works to save his people and his community. The church is buying property and building Black-owned businesses, but many Black ministers are afraid to be Black. 
They are often dependent upon non-Blacks for supplemental incomes, political appointments, and government grants. To protect their relationship with a majority society, they avoid anything that is identifiably Black and willing to sell out their people, whether for extra income or special recognition from whites or simply out of ignorance. Whatever the reason, the harm to Blacks cannot be erased. A case in point is a business alliance formed by five of the nation's largest black churches in the late 1990s called the Revelation Corporation of America. According to reports, a white businessman from Memphis helped the churches create the alliance. Predominantly white-owned businesses would sell their products to black Americans at a discount through these churches. Both the white-owned businesses as well as the black the, the businessman who helped establish the alliance stood to make a substantial profit. Black ministers earned about 12% commission for steering consumer dollars out of black communities and into the coffers of white and non-black businesses. This economic model is not in the self-interest of blacks. It directed dollars away from black businesses and to white and Korean-owned businesses. The, this alliance followed the historical pattern of using black consumer dollars to make whites and others wealthy, dropping a few crumbs to blacks along the way. Alliances of this type allowed whites and Korean businesses to take over the black funeral home industry, just as they engineered the recent takeover of the black hair care industry and black music industry. It is inappropriate for black churches and black ministers to allow themselves to be used as hunt dogs by those who want to exploit black consumers. That was a word right there. I'm gonna let y'all take a breath. And I think that that is quite a bit to cover for tonight. Um, so I so so what Dr. Anderson's saying right there is that most of the time industry is taken over by people who are not black. If you create something amazing, there are people that are industrially minded who come along and extract that from you and make that into something of their own. Uh, why? Well, part of that is uh, due to mindset, uh, not protecting the ball. Right. Number one, not knowing the value of what you have and not protecting that um, other parts of mindset. Number two, uh, we talk about this a lot in the black business school, thinking like an employee and not thinking like an owner. If you don't think like an owner, then you're not going to be an owner of anything. Right. So thinking like an owner means uh, you're protecting the ball. You're, you're, you're saying, OK, let's develop industry for ourselves within our own group so that we can keep this power in here, almost like uh, the air conditions on, we're going to shut the window now so that the cool air doesn't get out and get replaced by hot air. Okay. Uh, the other piece of this too, this is where, uh, again, Dr. Anderson talks about this. He talks about the role of structure that creates racial inequality, but then also inappropriate black behavior or bad culture. And again, uh, in, in my book, The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power, and also my Black American Money series, all this is on Amazon, so feel free to go to Amazon and grab a copy. One thing that I want to emphasize to you is that a lot of this is very cultural. See, it's very easy to say, oh, man, those white people and those Asian people, whenever we get something good, they come and take it. Or those Jewish people, whenever we, whenever we create something amazing, they come and take it. Uh, yeah, they, they do take it, but sometimes you hand it to them. Sometimes you hand it to them. And, and, and the hard part is, see, the easy part is to complain about what other people are doing to you. The hard part is facing accountability of your role in expediting whatever took place that, that violated you. Uh, I gave you all the example last week. We talked about Whitney Houston and Clive Davis. I, I showed that picture of Whitney and Clive. 
And uh, and I don't know what kind of person Clive Davis is. I'll have to ask Kenny Gamble one day. Kenny Gamble is a great black man. I love to death. He lives in Philadelphia. Gamble and Huff. They, they're the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, I don't know if Clive is a good man or a bad man. But I know that Clive profited tremendously from Whitney Houston as well as many other extraordinary black singers. Does that make it make him an unethical person? Not necessarily. He was getting in where he could fit in. He just came from a culture that didn't raise him to, 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 to try to become the best singer on the planet or the best entertainer in the world. He wasn't learning how to sing and dance and act and, and, and rap and all this other stuff. He wasn't doing all that as a kid. You know what he was doing? He was in the books. Clive, do your homework. Do your homework, Clive. He was going to law school so he could learn the law and learn business. He was around people that were teaching him how to own and control an industry. So there was a mindset, cultural aspect of what he brought to the table that is going to be similar to what your kids are going to bring to the table. But you have to start them young. It's hard to reverse the training when they're 30, 40, 50 years old. It's better to learn it when you're seven. So, so here's my point. Dr. Anderson talks about how Koreans took over the black hair care industry. Well, what if we had a million black entrepreneurs, many thousands of whom were forming businesses in the hair care industry? It would be a lot harder to take over that industry because we wouldn't be giving up that territory. Uh, he talked about how other uh, communities, whites maybe came in and set up businesses and, and, and were able to take over things like our music. Well, maybe if instead of just creating great music, we also had people uh, who more people like Russell Simmons. Now, notice it's not a coincidence that Russell Simmons has a deep relationship with the Jewish community. That's not a coincidence. There's a cultural overlap there. I know Russell. I know him very well. We, we worked together on a mass incarceration campaign uh, in 2013. I'm very proud of him because he really he was very honorable in, in terms of how he did his work. We actually achieved something. We got a lot done. So he and I worked together. I wrote a letter to Obama. He pushed it to the celebrities. We pressured the Obama administration to change their incarceration policy. It worked. I love Russell Simmons. He's a great guy. Here's the thing about Russell. Back in the 1970s, when everybody was trying to become a rapper, everybody was looking for the best parties. Everybody was trying to find out who, who was winning the rap battles between MC Shan and Karis One or whatever, right? Or Africa Bambata and uh, Grandmaster Flash. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing the, the times up, but y'all get the point. You know what Russell was doing? Russell was creating business entities. Russell was like, okay, we can create a group. Um, I'm going to get my brother and get his friend down the street and somebody else and Jam Master J. We're going to call you Jam Master J. Whatever, and we're going to create this group called Run DMC. Right. He was thinking at a higher level. He was operating at a different vibrational frequency when it came to seeing the opportunity that was in front of him. He didn't just see it as this chance to make a dope album. He saw this as a chance to create a dope business. Right. So imagine if we had just as many Russell Simmonses as we have uh, basketball players, football players and rappers. Imagine if we had as many entrepreneurs as we have entertainers. Because the entrepreneurs are the ones who think in terms of systems and can actually control industries, understand things like access to capital and development of, of, of production processes and, and distribution and monetization of a product and marketing and sales divisions and all that. Like that's what that's what you need. That's what you need. So it, again, so when I was um 
I, I was, there was a moment where I wanted to, when I was, when I, I'll tell you guys a lot about the, 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 all the hours of conversation I spent on the phone with Kanye West. He called me during the all black national convention. He told me he wanted to come and I got really concerned. I was like, man, I don't know if we got enough security for us, but I kid you not, he wanted to come. He was going to come, but the whole day we were trying to figure out how to, how to set up and prepare for him to come. Cause at that time he was the most hated person on earth, but I didn't care. We pay the bills so I can invite anybody I want. Um, the thing I was trying to put in his ear that I couldn't quite get him to understand and see the vision of this is I said, what if we took just a drop of all that Adidas money, right? Instead of you telling them how much you hate Jewish people, what if we took a drop of that money, maybe 10 million, 20 million, and created economic training camps all across the country, the same way you have football training camps for black kids and cheerleading training camps and basketball camps. How about we have economic camps? where every single child that wants to can go into these camps and learn just very basic ideas on real estate, very basic ideas on entrepreneurship, a very basic standardized curriculum on stock market investing to shift the culture and shift their thinking so that when they're choosing what they want to do with their lives, they're thinking in a different way. They're not just thinking about working for the entrepreneur. Some of them are going to want to be one. Some kids are built to be bosses. That's why they get fired from so many jobs. That's why they get in trouble in school. That's why they don't fit into systems because some people are so tall that their head is going to hit the ceiling every time. Those little tiny spaces, those little tiny opportunities they give you, those little tiny scraps, it's like putting a seven, sometimes it's like putting a seven foot kid in a, in a room that only goes five feet tall. The only way he can fit is if he crouches and he's probably going to bust his head again the ceiling so it's going to hurt he's going to mess up the building they're going to put him out because he's busting his head against the ceiling every time because some of your kids are too tall to be economic midgets some of your kids are too tall to be uh the betas uh the beta males so some some of your kids are too smart to be to to sit behind somebody who's less intelligent than them some of your kids have energy they they like i'm like that the same way i'm like this now and i'm yelling and screaming and all that i've been like that my whole life my mother said i that she could not manage me because i had so much energy a lot of your black boys are like that a lot of your black boys are like go get it come on let's go let's go let's go and what you do is you put them in sports so they can get that out of the sport they can go tackle people or run up and down the basketball court but they also some of them just want to go out here and do something they want to be somebody they want to win they want to compete. That's testosterone talking, man. You don't medicate that child and put them on Ritalin so they'll sit down and shut up and be a little punk. No, you you encourage that. You put them in spaces where they get rewarded for going extra hard and pushing extra hard because that's the heart of a champion. That's the heart of a winner. But unfortunately, the only space they have to let that kind of energy out is like on the basketball court. And if they're not six foot six, like Kobe Bryant or something, then it's all going to get wasted because then they're going to be five foot eight thinking they're going to the NBA. Ain't nobody going to the NBA five foot eight. That's crazy. So, but you can become a millionaire at four foot two. You know, you can become, you know, you can run a business even if you're three feet tall. So, so what I'm saying is that I think that we should commit as a general policy of all intelligent black people, we should declare it upon ourselves to commit ourselves to this very basic idea that our children will be as well-trained in economics and making money and building wealth as they are at basketball, football, rapping, cheerleading, twerking, or any other extracurricular activity that distracts us but, but puts zero dollars in the bank account. I, I really just think that's it's a basic idea. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Here's the cool part. This is the cool part. Take my word for it. My PhD is in this stuff. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot of exposure to like complex ideas. It doesn't. It just is basic stuff. You know, um, like you tell your kid like, hey, you know, yeah, you can go work for somebody, but it's better to be the boss. Well, that stays with them. 
If you say, uh, yeah, let's buy you some stock. We're going to buy you $20 worth of stock every week. And we go do it consistently. And then that'll just be in your portfolio. That'll make a difference. If you just tell them that owning a property is better than uh, renting, they're going to remember that. If you tell them that wealth is a better measure of economic success than income, they're going to keep that in mind. These are not complex ideas. This is not complex at all. It, 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 the thing about it is that what you're trying to really do is you're trying to spark, uh, spark the match. And you're trying to beat them, beat, you're trying to beat society to, in the race to define your child. You're supposed to beat them. You're supposed to get to the mark first, right? So that means that I'm going to help my child form his identity before society tells him what his identity is supposed to be. I'm going to tell you who you are before the world tells you who you are. Because when the world tells you who you are, they're going to make you think that you're the class clown. If the world tells you who you are, they, the rappers are going to make you think you want to be a thug and a dope deal and a boss like Rick Ross. You know, damn boss. Sorry, man. You're poisoning black people. That's not a boss. That's a scrub. That's a loser. Right. Uh, the world is going to tell you that you're supposed to be an athlete. And, and you know, when really, uh, you know, I can tell you, no, you're supposed to be a thinker. You're supposed to be a father and a husband. You're supposed to be a winner. You're supposed to be a leader. You're supposed to be a lady. You're supposed to have grace. You're supposed to have charm, power. You're supposed to elevate your people. There's nothing more important for you to do than be there for your people. Like you can tell your, your kids these things and you don't have to have a college degree to do that. That's my point. I'm telling you to take control of your territory and don't give that up. Take control of that mind space for yourself and for your family. Don't give that up. Don't let other people take the territory that should belong to you. You're supposed to live rent-free in your kid's head, not the school system, not media, not these other people, but you have to be intentional and very assertive about it. And I guarantee it'll make a difference, but you have competition because the whole world, there's a whole big world that wants your child to be a slave. Because we we historically have been the best slaves imaginable. I don't want our kids to be slaves. That's my so my goal is singular. I believe that be one people, not black people, not all black people. I can't talk to every black person. Some black people think I'm uppity and 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 crazy, and they get mad at me because I don't agree with them politically or whatever. I don't care about those people. I believe be one people can be and should be and will be the most economically intelligent group of people on the planet. I will achieve this goal. It will be in effect by the year 2070. That is, we got 47 years to get that done. I might only be on this earth for another 25 or 30 if I'm lucky. So after that's done, the job will be complete. The ball will be rolling down the street. And I guarantee you, you're going to see us absolutely murdering the game if we do even a fraction of what we're talking about right here. So, so you're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't be afraid. Don't listen to the idiots. Be smart. Control your kids. That's all I got to say. Thank you so much for listening. All right, guys, I'm going to get on out of here. Uh, we're going to do this again next week. Uh, if you'd like to uh, join uh, in the life class for free, if you're listening outside, you can go to blackkeystogreatness.com. That's blackkeystogreatness.com. Or you can just go to boyswalkins.com and, and look for the link and you can join the book club uh, and join join the private Zoom. Uh, also, uh, those of you that want to go to the convention, uh, the All Black National Convention is going to be October 20th in Atlanta at the Marriott Marquis Hotel. You can go to allblacknationalconvention.com. I also put links on my website, boyswalkins.com. If you have a Black-owned business and you want to be a vendor or you want us to promote you. Uh, there are opportunities for all of that. There are discount hotels, all that. We've already made the deal with the hotel, so it's going to be at the Marriott Marquis uh, Hotel uh, October 20th. Uh, also, um, on boyswalkins.com, there's some other resources. I put something up there, uh, a training I did about a year ago, uh, the recording of it, and it's called How to Become a Millionaire with Five Minutes a Month. So if you want to keep going and there's more stuff that you want to dig into, uh, then uh, just go to that site. Now, Karen Dorsey says that the hotel information is not on allblacknationalconvention.com. It should be there, 
Um, I'm going to look at the page and uh, I'm going to double check with the team. It should be on this page. Um, I So uh, let me see here. I'm going to, here we go. It's actually, if you go to allblacknationalconvention.com, I'm looking at it right now. And there is a section at the bottom that says book your hotel room. So what I'm going to do is show you guys this on the screen. Uh, and uh, you can see it right here. This is allblacknationalconvention.com, hotel accommodations. You can click here. It's going to be at the Marriott Marquis on uh, Peachtree Center Avenue uh, in Atlanta. And uh, here's where you can get your uh, passes. And we have different passes. And the B1 ball is always a lot of fun. And uh, we're going to have a ton of speakers. And the A, B, and C is literally the coolest, funnest uh, place for B1 people. Uh, so I, I think you guys are going to love it. I know you're going to love it because you always do. All right. So have a great day, uh, everybody. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week. So take care now. Bye-bye.